Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. up everybody welcome to this episode of true crime and cocktails we're so glad you're here as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you doing oh i'm great just to be here at night snuggled from the waist down in a hug smuggler blanket because i have to have a an air vent blowing cold air on my feet because I'm so surrounded by lights and filled with booze that it's hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm I at. Get that. That's where I'm at. I get that. Yeah. I am wearing my Hug Smuggler shirt, so I feel oh, like we're, you're in good company. Nice. That's yes. nice. Listen, um, I... It's shockingly cool in my house. Shockingly cool. I keep it like an icebox in here. But um, normally at this point in the day, I have been like blasting the air because I know we're recording and I need to get it <laughs> cooled down. But it was a gloomy gust day here in L.A. Gloomy, gloomy, oh. gloomy. So it's been cool all day, which is a joy for me. I like to change. I like it when it's changed up. You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it took a little nap. Took a little nap with Peaches. Fox will not get in the bed with me. He slept <laughs> in a bed at the in a bed at the foot of my bed, which makes complete sense. <laughs> and now I'm cracking a high noon to you know make myself feel better about it all. Uh, what are you drinking over there? Um, I just I'm I'm going to Palm Bay. It just mm-hmm. feels right, and I wasn't going to have anything at all, but I was like, uh, I'm already feeling like. Weird and punchy because I woke up knowing I was behind. Ah, and sometimes our, we used to get into recording on Fridays. Yes, and then I would get to a point of like, ah, something's come up. I'm behind. We would push it to a Sunday, and then we get to a point where it's I've gone too far. We had the brunch 
uh, on Patreon yesterday, so we couldn't record after that, because after that, I am useless. Um, and so it was like, okay, then we're going to push to a Monday. We're kind of cutting it close, so we got to get it done. And I woke up this morning and went, oh, wow, I'm not even half done organizing my notes. So I like kids out the door, head down, and just like went for it with my notes. And at one point, my husband came in the office and just went, do you want to eat lunch like in here or out there? And I was like, I'm actually not going to eat it all. He's like, it's made. I'm like, great. I'll be right there. I'm starving. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to eat. I, I can't hear that you're not yeah. taking food breaks. Well, I like, he's like, we're, I'm, I'm going to sit in the living room and watch a show. I'm like, watch a show. <laughs> What's the time? So I was like, okay. So we're sitting there. I'm just <laughs> wolfing it down. And he's like, okay great and then partway through i was like great thanks for lunch bye and i was gone and back here and head down and i got it done i got it done a lot faster than i thought i would um and i don't know if it's because i wouldn't allow myself distractions mm. and normally if it's like something dark and there's like murder and like stuff that you don't really want to think about too much i will listen to ABBA on repeat to just bring myself up a little bit from the nightmare that I'm living in. But mm -hmm. this week it's not as dark. Right. So I didn't need ABBA. So this time I wasn't, you know, singing along so I could focus on my notes more. So it went faster, but I'm still late because, you know, it's been a week. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'd say, you know, I'd say it was – it's like, oh, it's been a week? What specifically? But then it's like, oh, no, it's, I mean, it's always a week. It's always a week for us. Yeah. This show, these lives, this world. It never stops. It never stops. I mean, and that's great. Uh, it's just, it's always something. And I'm like, okay, today I'm going to, I'm going to really work on notes. And then it was, okay, but my one son has a football game. Well, Okay, I'll work in on my notes in the car because we had to drive for it. And it was so cold. I was in mitts and a toque and I had a blanket pulled up to my eyes. So I couldn't work <laughs> on notes that night. But the joke of the province that I live in, uh, the next day my other son had a football game and it was so hot. <laughs> that yeah, it's just a nightmare. But my And I was like, you know what? I brought notes. I worked on them. Before the game started, I worked on them at the half. And then I was like, great, we're going to go. Game's ending in like five minutes. Going to grab my stuff, go home, work on notes. And then my son got injured three minutes left in the game. And we spent three hours in the ER. So oh. it's just, <laughs> he's fine. He's fine. But it was just, uh, I didn't have notes with me at the ER because I didn't think that part through. Uh, I was more jagged energy concerned of, I got to get him x-rayed and make sure he's fine. And he is fine. But oof, that really took the day. And then the brunch, I, I hit it a little hard at the brunch. So for the evening, I was useless. <laughs> I requested my husband drive me to 7-Eleven so I could get a Slurpee because I was not well enough to drive and um yeah the rest of the night i don't really remember what we did <laughs> maybe we watched a show i don't know 
Listen, I think you needed to blow off a little steam. Yeah. I think it's great. Now, yeah. I asked you what you were drinking. Did you answer me? I, I said Pompeii somewhere in there, there. I think. <laughs> I, love it. I was like, I know I asked. You did. Did she answer? Did. I, I mean, listen, that somewhere just speaks in that to my half own. an hour she did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just speaking to my own. There's something going on with my, like, record screen. It looks different than normal. Everything's fine. But I don't care for change. So I feel yeah. like I'm also like, why is am I not seeing my thingy? Anyway, point being, uh, I'm also just hanging on by a thread. You know what I'm saying? And that's <laughs> mm-hmm. so this is mm-hmm. this is some really good energy between the two of us. It's the yeah. yin and the yang. It's uh, you know, that's what true crime and cocktails, that's the magic. Yeah. Is it's uh, you know, two women <laughs> as frazzled as they are drunk. Uh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Which feels right. Now, obviously, this episode we're talking about Tanya Harding. I know yeah. you've been jazzed about this one, and so have I. I have. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you just want a true crime story that's not murder. Yes. That's not, like, the darkest dark you can find. And last week, we we <laughs> we got there. Um, we did. I'm, yep. I'm trying not to think about John Wayne Gacy anymore, but I am. Uh, So it's nice to have something that's a little, I I don't dare say lighter, but you know what I mean? That's not as dark and heavy. So it's nice of a change up. And uh, I mean, I remember when it went down and I, looking back at some of this, I was like, wow, I remember it as one thing and I'm reading and going, oh, it was... Not quite what I remembered, but again, I was like 12, 13 at the time when it happened, so. Yeah, and I remember it too. I mean, gosh, it like rocked the world. Yeah. It was such a, a huge scandal. And then, of course, there was the I, I Tanya movie, which was um, such a good one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited to get into it because, again, I feel like my memory of it is also different. Um as is what happens with nostalgia memories, you know what I mean? Uh, not that I, I'm suggesting that we have like a warm, fuzzy feeling about the <laughs> no. Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan scandal, but um, <laughs> certainly that time, it made me think of, and I don't know whether we've referenced, I know that we've we've alluded to this on the show, yeah, uh, but I don't know that we've ever really gotten into it, is there was a summer, it was 1996? Um, I think it was 96. It, it must have been because they're every two years, right? Yes. It yeah. was the Summer Olympics, 1996, which would have been Georgia, Georgia. It was Atlanta, right? It was, yeah. I just remember that that song was like prominently featured in of different ceremonies. And Christy and I were like, Olympics? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would have been 13 at the time. You would have been 14. I was visiting for part of the summer uh, out in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Regina at the time. Yeah. Shout out Regina. Shout out Regina, Saskatchewan. Why not? Um, We'll just hold for all the Americans laughing. Just give them a second to get over the name. We know how it sounds. It's, you know. You had a great line once that was like, it sounds as good as it smells. Oh, uh, it smells (laughs) like it sounds. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we 
decided or we didn't decide so we were like oh the olympics who cares like we're way too like alt for this of course we're way too punk rock we don't care yep. about this oh let's watch it to make fun of it yeah let, 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 let's watch gymnastics to make fun of them and we got so invested mm-hmm. in the in the olympic gymnastics yeah uh both uh the men's and the women's but certainly the men's we got oh, yeah. deeply <laughs> deeply invested in mm-hmm to the point that we would have to go out for like family events. Like it'd be like, get in the van, we're gonna go do whatever. And we'd be pissed because we're like, well, you know, the Olympics, it's like, you never know what you're gonna get. It's a box of chocolates and Forrest yeah. Gump is at the wheel. <laughs> and you know, mm-hmm. um, so we we would have to accept the fact that it was like, well, I guess we're gonna miss something. And then we'd be setting VCRs. We would have yeah. like a six, hour-long tape to just tape hours of Olympics coverage in the hopes that there would be a male Olympics gymnastics thing. But we did yeah. also watch some of the, the the gals towards the end. But who is your favorite? Blaine Wilson, was that his name? Yeah. I went to the point, because we can't have the same boyfriend. Never. Um, And they showed, because of course, on, a, on an American station, they, sh- they are like, we're going to focus on American. And so I saw the American team a lot, and Blaine Wilson, uh, there was something about him I was so drawn to. I went to, like, a Claire's or something and got two little initial beads and made a necklace that just said BW, and my family had no idea what it was, and I was just like, oh, well. I remember somebody said, uh, I know what it is, boy watcher. (laughs) <laughs> and that's really a that's a precursor to Blanche if I've ever heard it. <laughs> wow, yeah. That yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I also have not Googled him in decades. Well, so somebody right now listening to this right now is Googling him. Oh, I'm sure they are. Yeah. And they're going to get a mighty surprise when they Google yours. That's right. My Olympics crush <laughs> was Russian. Alexei Nemov. Yeah. What I like is we also have not discussed this in great depth in years, yeah. but it's still burned right there in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, he was cute. He was beautiful. He was really cute. Like, he had a really cute face. Yeah. Yeah. I should look him up too because I'm I'm curious about that. I wonder what they're yeah. doing now. I wonder if they're still in the gymnastics world. Like, are they coaches now? Are they still? It's more than possible. I. Like, he was so cute that I just assumed there wasn't a lot going on upstairs. <laughs> so I don't know how much, <laughs> what he could be doing now. But Well, um, I mean, also, we can't, yeah. I mean, we can't assume that the pretty don't have brains. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> there was just something so childlike and adorable. And his face was like, oh, God, what's the word for it? It's flawless. Flawless is the word I was looking for. <laughs> He was very beautiful. Um, he looked a lot like, uh, he looked a lot like the older boy in high school that I was interested in. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that's an aside. Uh, but I remember we made this video. And this we have definitely referenced on the show before. We made a series of like sketches, which included yeah. the Alanis Morissette ironic video we remade, which we've posted. But one of the things was like us doing a like a talk show 
where we were interviewing Alexei Namov, but yeah. it was it was like us just talking to him doing gymnastics. Yeah. It was a stretch. It was kind of like an improv game, but like really a stretch. Um <laughs> And then I remember being deeply jealous of Dominique Mozianu because yes. at the end, the Olympic, the the gals team that won was, of course, the American team, Carrie Strug, who we remember did the whole, uh -huh. um, what is it, the vault with her broken ankle, which also, right. my God, that poor woman. Um, but anyway, that was that whole thing. And then at the end, so it was the the American women and the Russian men were the ended up being the gold medalists in the all arounds. And- Alexei Namov. So we're so excited. We're watching this in the yeah. moment like, as it's happening. And apropos of nothing, Alexei Namov picks up Dominique Mozianu and tiny. like just starts carrying her around. She was a tiny, tiny. Well, she was also a child. Yeah. She was like 13 at the time um, mm -hmm. and, and, and built like a younger child, obviously. Now, granted, I don't know how old Alexei Namov was at the time, um, but he was definitely older than 13. And I just remember feeling like you remember the moment in The Simpsons where <laughs> they sh they're they're showing um, the replay of Ralph Wiggum giving Lisa the card, and it's like you can pinpoint, you can pinpoint the, the <laughs> moment his heart rate. He goes, yeah. "Oh, yeah. that's what it was for me." Uh, I was just like, "Ah!" Like it hurts so deeply for some reason that then I just became like enraged at Dominique Mozianu, which I want to say right now. Not okay, Lauren Ash, but I was only 13 at the time and I didn't know any better, okay? This is before yeah. I learned about something called the patriarchy and why pitting women against women only serves the patriarchy and nobody else. Sure. Um, but anyway, so then what we <laughs> went on to do was a scathing, scathing takedown sketch where I did a very unflattering impression of Dominique Mosianu, including putting putting my shoes on my knees like Dorf on Golf. <laughs> you for dwarf references yep oh who didn't have that cassette kicking around who well our grandfather it? had had dwarf on golf oh. i've watched dwarf on golf more than oh. once and for those who don't know the younger listeners <laughs> we'll po we'll post a photo because it's too hard to get into <laughs> long story short a grown man did a character which basically was just him on mm -hmm. his knees on shoes to make him look short, which is the bit just that he's short? Because that feels really problematic now. Oh, yeah. You're not making Dorf on golf now. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, why was his name Dorf? Like, what? Because like, it was close to dwarf? Like, oh, not, not that's great. worse. Yeah, it's not Yeah, great. I have a lot of questions about that. Was it Tim Conway? I want to say yes, but I'm not sure because yeah. for some reason I thought it was Canadian. I have no clue. See, again, I haven't had time to look it up, but I will. Well, but um, how would you know that Dorf on Golf was <laughs> <laughs> I need to, like, research so much from our lives and just have a large binder. And when you bring something up, I just go down the tabs, D, D for Dorf, and then go into it and be like, this is what I've looked up. Uh, my One of my favorite things from that specific uh, moment in our lives I I don't have the best memory in the world, but I distinctly remember that we were told we were going to go to the mall and you and I were like, it's our time because this was pre-internet. So we had no way of getting photos of the gymnasts that we liked. 
Yes. So we were like, well, this is our chance. Magazines, newspapers, that's all we got to go on. And because I don't think people was doing like once a week at that point. So it was like, oh, we weren't going to find much. Newspapers is all we had. We went to the Cornwall Center. Shout out Cornwall Center. Uh, and shout out New York Fries, because it's there and it's one of my favorites. <laughs> God, I'd dip a fry in a cheese sauce right now. Um, um, preach. But we went to the Cornwall Center. I can remember us running past the escalators to get to this, like, newsstand and just turned into full teenage girls by not really caring about other people but also elderly men caring about the paper because we got like we each grabbed a bunch of copies of like different newspapers and we had them spread out looking for the section so we knew which ones to buy because we weren't made of money we couldn't buy all of them we were specifically looking for one that had a picture and it's like alexei namoff was more likely to be in there They weren't going to have a photo of Blaine Wilson, Christy. If I could go back in time, I'd be like, hon, it's not going to happen. Someday, you'll be able to look him up no problem on your phone. You'll forget about it for 30 years, but someday you'll do it. (laughs) And I do Uh, remember there was large photos of Alexei Namov in in those newspapers. um, Because he was such a, I think he was like winning everything. He was winning like the individual events and stuff. Well, and and he was winning at face. (laughs) <laughs> he, he was he was very photogenic and the gold medal for best face goes to dwarf on golf uh no i'm kidding um <laughs> no i i do think I'm, i think people magazine might have been weekly but but the other thing was is that we were so up to the minute this was the problem is that it was like right. we were gonna have to wait another week before there was gonna be any coverage because you know they hadn't won yet so we didn't have the time to wait Our trip was only so long. That's right. And I also remember, speaking of not being made of money, I remember you had all the letters picked out so that you could get a a two-row necklace that spelled out Blaine Wilson, but you weren't made of money. And you were like, ah, I don't know. It's like $3 a letter or something. (laughs) You're like, this is getting pricey. And so you did settle on the initials. And then you were like, this is kind of nice, though, because it can be kind of like a mystery. And you know what? I don't think I wore it much after that summer. And that crushes me because why didn't I think to wear it to school and make the guys think that was my boyfriend? Well, well it's you did because that, that wasn't the, else. Yeah, that wasn't the initials of the boy that I claimed I was dating. That's why. Oh, wow. Uh, I still have those. I don't have the necklace I put it on because I assume I reused that for something else. Because uh, we went through that phase where we were just making different beaded necklaces all the time. But uh, I do still have those two letters because I'm like, I can't get rid of them. Like, why would I get rid of them? I need to dig them out. Um, but also quickly, I just want to say I did just do a quick dwarf. All I had to do was type in dwarf and on golf was my second hit. I clicked it. <laughs> Tim Conway. Okay, great. Great, yeah. great. From Great. 1987. We we don't need to know, dear listeners, if you weren't alive then. Nope, we don't. I graduated from kindergarten in 1987, I believe. Because uh, yeah. I think 
that I only remember that because we have a video of my kindergarten grad that I'm pretty sure says Christy Kindergarten 87. I'm fairly certain. But the video is me for an hour and a half playing with my dress and talking to the boy beside me. And I haven't changed a bit. (laughs) Christopher? Was it Christopher? Uh, It wasn't because it was alphabetical order. Oh. And I was in the A's for Ash, so I was the very first kid, and he was in the M's in the middle. Oh. I want to stay loyal for one hour and a half, huh? Okay, first of all, I'm a loud friend, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course. Uh, And I know he will never hear this, so (laughs) I just feel like... Why not? Shout out to Jared Beatty for putting up with me for an hour and a half at a kindergarten grad 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I hope that he hasn't turned into like, you know, somebody problematic. Uh, agreed. I mean, would it be nice to find out that he's been carrying a torch for 30 years? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> he does not remember me. I moved two or three years after that. So I left in such a random middle of the day once uh, at school and then just never came back. It was weird. Oh, yeah, that's right. They made me go to school for half a day. I think you talked about that on the show once. Give me the rest of the day. Give me the day. Take take the day. What was I going to learn that day? The answer is that uh, (laughs) saying goodbye is difficult. (laughs) Maybe that was the point. Give me a chance to say goodbye to everybody. Yeah, but I don't know that they made that clear enough to you. I mean, you were a no. little kid. I feel like you need it, it needed to be made very clear that it's like, yeah. this is the intention here. And I feel like they didn't. And so then you were just confused. Well, and also the teacher's not going to change her lesson plan to middle of the day party just because. Like, she, she's she got a lesson plan to follow. So we had to, like, learn stuff. And it's like, why... Why? I will never know. But the point is, yeah, I I have never stopped fidgeting and I have never stopped speaking to boys. <laughs> that's that's where I'm at, you know? Well, listen, on that note, let's get into it. Let's talk about Winter Olympics, which we never got into for some reason. And of course... Oh, if you want to talk Winter Olympics at some point, I can talk tessa virtue scott moyer till the end of time yeah i've i've fallen off i'm a bad canadian i know <sighs> i know i know i'm it. like the rest of the canadians i want them so desperately to be in love i want an article to come out tomorrow that's like oh by the way they're engaged because they're so they seem like it and i know that's just their job to act a certain way and you did it. And you, <laughs> and you broke our hearts when you didn't choose each other. No. You broke stop. my heart. Yeah. Shout out John Corbett. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now we're just shouting out every boy from our past, huh? Well, listen, that's a story for another episode. But yeah, we are. He <laughs> held my face and kissed it with his mouth. Okay, that's the truth. He did. And then people are like, that sounds creepy. It wasn't. Okay. She had a welcome sign. <laughs> I was, was very yeah. open for business. Um, nothing else happened, but he was a he's a beautiful man. He is. Beautiful man. Tall. Oh. My kryptonite. 
Yeah. Any hoodle. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. God, you're knocking it out of the park today, Dorf on Golf. Oh. Hoodle. <laughs> if I find out that Dorf on Golf said any hoodle, I will laugh till the end of time. I can't wait for us to have a viewing of Dorf on Golf. It's going to be so bad. Yep. I remember my dad having the tape, but I never once watched it. Well, I want to know, did he buy our grandfather the tape or the or did or vice versa? Because they both had it. So that's my question. Who watched it first and then said, this is such great comedy. I have to buy this for either my father or my son. You know, I I give you option three. Grandma. Doing, oh. doing some Christmas shopping, maybe wants a stocking stuffer, finds Dorf on Golf in a clearance bin. I think that at the time, and given the technology, I think that might have been a full $25 gift. Oh, then maybe she was like, they're hard to buy for. I don't know. They both already have slippers. And, <laughs> you know, because they had that, the very same hard sole, very specific plaid on the top slipper like that's just who they both of those men are um and so it i feel like maybe they got a pair of the slippers and the cassette and that was their gift you know what it was like a twofer that's nice it is that's nice it is at at a go (laughs) at a go grandma all righty here we grow in january 1994 american figure skater nancy Take that back to ones. Good God. In January 1994, American figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was physically attacked the day before the Olympic trials. The bodyguard of Nancy's skating rival, Tanya Harding, later admitted to orchestrating the attack. And Tanya's own husband also claimed to be involved. Both men said that Tanya helped to plan everything, but Tanya claims that she is completely innocent. So what really happened to Nancy Kerrigan? Did her main skating rival take her out to better her odds at winning an Olympic medal? Or is Tanya Harding as much of a victim as Nancy? Oh, it's, my. Uh, just because we're not dealing in the bowels of death doesn't yes. mean we're not going on a ride. <laughs> Listen, I say all the time, true crime doesn't have to involve murder. It's true. It's nice to change it up. And you know what? This was a nice excuse to finally watch I, Tanya, because I had not. I thought it was, I liked it. I thought it was a good episode. A good episode. Yeah, I, I was going to wow. let it go. I was going to let it go. Wow. <laughs> it's just that sometimes you don't realize how yeah. broken your brain is until mm-hmm. you hear yourself speak. I thought it was yeah. a good film there we go. Oh, it was. Uh, and I do reference it at some point later on. Uh, my only thing was uh, Sebastian Stan was not the choice based on what the real guy looked like. Hmm. Because you were being far too kind to that man who didn't deserve it. Uh, give Sebastian Stan work, for love of God. Yes. But... Be more realistic. You know, like that guy. In another life, in another life, you are a casting director. Just know that. Oh, I feel it because I it's just it's my go to. And if somehow that's where my life leads, which am I gonna start over again at 50? (laughs) Who knows? As a casting director, I'm not gonna break into the biz at 
50, especially not if I keep calling it the biz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know. Oh, boy. Well, we are going to go kind of all over the place. I, again, did these uh, today to finish it off. And (sighs) then I was like, when do you want to start? And you said around this time, maybe I'm going to have a nap. So I'm like, oh, she's she's having a little shut eye. I have some time to add more. So I went back in and added a little more. And I don't know if I added them in the right spot. So we're going to find out in the moment. I like it. And this just, uh, it's just where we're at. And uh, don't think that just because there's no death doesn't mean there's not going to be stuff that are going to make you go, oh, okay. Like there's, there's some stuff. So, you know, trigger warning for a lot of this episode as far as, you know, assault and abuse. Yes, and that's of just because I may not think to say it in the moment. So, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, fair enough. Oh, so, uh, oh God, get in the car. We're going for it. One night while out 10 pin bowling with friends, Albert Harding met waitress Lavana Fay. Not long after the couple married in the late 1960s, there is not much information about Lavana. And that enrages me yeah. because she is such a huge part of the Tanya story. But of course, you know, I'm going to supply everything uh, that I found. According to Tanya, Lavana's first marriage didn't last long, but the second resulted in the birth of twin boys. One of the boys unfortunately suffered from crib death shortly after his birth. The other son died when he was in his 30s. Oh, yeah. Lavana's third marriage resulted in a daughter, although I have no clue what her name is because it is, I cannot find it anywhere. Uh, What I do know is that before Tanya was born, Lavana allegedly had three boys and a girl, and that Albert was Lavana's fourth husband. Although Lavana says she had Tanya with her third husband, so I just don't know why these simple facts can't be easily verified. Because Tanya and her mother are giving different answers and like different articles give different answers. They sometimes say Albert was the third husband. And it's just, I don't know. Uh, What we do know is that Tanya Maxine Harding was born November 12th, 1970 in Portland, Oregon. Her parents, Albert and Lavana, separated in 1985 and legally divorced in the summer of 1987. In December of that same year, Lavana married husband number five, James Golden. Tanya believes that Lavana has married and divorced at least twice since then, but she has kept her name as Lavana Golden. Mm. Tanya's childhood has been described as fractured, dysfunctional, and abusive. Although later in life, Tanya would say, quote, nobody believed me about the abuse ever because I'm tough. Between birth and the fifth grade, Tanya said their family moved 13 times. Wow. Tanya said it meant she didn't have a lot of friends and she admitted to being teased a lot as a child. Although looking back, Tanya said she believes that the bullying was simply because the other kids were jealous of her because she got to arrive later and leave earlier at school for the sake of skating. Some have argued it was more due to the family's modest living, Mm. but... You know, whatever whatever you need to believe to get by. Yeah. 
Tanya claims she was molested by Lavana's oldest son, Chris Davison, for 10 years, starting at the age of five. In 1986, Tanya called the police on Davison, uh, and he spent a short time in prison. Lavana allegedly asked Tanya not to press criminal charges. Davison was later killed in a hit-and-run accident in 1988. That accident remains unsolved. Interesting. Mm. Tanya's father, Albert, worked various jobs, including at a rubber factory, a cement company, a sporting goods store, managing apartments, and a company that manufactured truck beds. However, Albert was often unemployed due to his poor health. So Lavana was often the sole provider for the family, working as a waitress, bartender, and a cook. Albert and Lavana fought a lot and would, in the heat of an argument, ask Tanya which parent she'd live with if they were to break up. And I'm going to say it. That's a bullshit thing to do to a kid. (laughs) Just going to say it. Uh, When Albert and Lavana finally divorced, Tanya went to stay with her father, but she was forced to move back in with her mother when Albert moved to Idaho after losing his job. Later in life, Tanya is adamant that, quote, my dad had to leave. He never abandoned me. Which I'm sure psychologist hat will say speaks volumes. Uh huh. Despite Albert leaving, Tanya grew up absolutely adoring her father and completely loathing her mother. Tanya and Lavana's relationship was rocky at best. Later in life, Tanya described her mother as, quote, where all my animosity comes from. Oh boy. Yeah. Tanya claims that this intense anger toward her mother comes from years of physical and verbal abuse. There is a well-known story where Tanya wasn't landing her jumps as perfectly as Lavana thought she should be, so Lavana took Tanya into the bathroom at the rink and beat her with a hairbrush. Lavana admits to the incident, saying, quote, I spanked her once with a hairbrush at a competition. But Lavana claims it was an isolated incident, while Tanya says it was a frequent occurrence. According mm-hmm. to Tanya, her mother, quote, would hit me with anything that was in the house, a hairbrush, ruler, wooden spoon, belt, you name it. She would drag me by the hair across a room for nothing, no reason. Lavana, of course, denies any abuse, saying, quote, I didn't abuse any of my children. Spanked? Yes, spanked. Absolutely, positively, you gotta show them right from wrong. Which is an intense uh, way to go, Lavana. Uh, Tanya also alleges that once when Tanya uh, was trying to leave the house mid-argument, Lavana threw a steak knife at her. Tanya claims she has a permanent scar on her arm to prove it. Lavana denies this, saying that Tanya has, quote, lied so much she doesn't know what isn't a lie anymore. And honestly, I am fairly quick to believe uh, the victims of abuse. But over the years, Tanya has been known to say a few things that I'm reluctant to mention as I wasn't able to fact check them. But they're about her life. So I'm taking you on a quick lacking sources side note. Aha. So there are a couple of things that Tanya has said that stood out to me. Uh, From what I can tell, she's only ever brought both of these things up during a single interview uh, and then just never brings them up again. Like at one point, Tanya claimed that her parents weren't her biological parents. 
She said, quote, I just have this feeling that it doesn't match up. A few years ago, a doctor told me my blood type is negative, and my supposed mom and dad are both positive. If your parents are both positive, you can't have a negative baby. Plus, I don't look like either of them. I don't know how anything happened. She could have had an affair. Something could have gone wrong at the hospital like I was switched. I could have been adopted. I have no idea. Again, she, from what I can tell, never brought this up again. Hmm. Then in 2000, Tanya claims she had breast implants because of a skating accident years before. She says in 1986, she was forced to abort a jump midair and she landed flat on her chest. She claims, quote, all the cartilage and muscle tissue that my boobs are made of flattened. And she said she went from a D cup to an A cup. She was 16 years old at the time of the accident, and it left her feeling like, quote, less of a woman. So in 1994, she had a boob job. I, I don't, is there cartilage in your boobs? I don't know. <laughs> I do know that this is also something she never brings up again. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I do not recommend Googling Tanya Harding boob anything. Um, the amount of hits for here are her measurements. Nope, not interested. Be better, internet. Mm. Um, but I just, I don't know why they would get brought up once. It feels weird. And they're just like wild claims. But again, I, I don't know. Um, maybe this is just something she does. Maybe it's some kind of coping mechanism for something. I, I don't know. But when it comes to her abusive past, I have no reason to ever doubt her. Tanya claims, quote, I don't think there was more than one day a week sometimes that I didn't get beaten. And it wasn't just physical abuse. Tanya also claimed in a 2008 memoir that, quote, I was told my whole life, you're fat, you're ugly, you're never going to amount to anything. In an interview, Lavana once admitted to talking down to Tanya, but tried to justify it by saying, quote, if there's no you can't do it type of a thing, then she won't do it. Mm -hmm. So gross. And the psychological abuse did not stop there. In the early 1980s, Tanya's father bought her a brand new pair of jeans for her first day of high school. When Lavana saw Tanya wear waiting at the bus wearing these new pants, Lavana dragged her in the house and forced her to change. Apparently, Lavana felt that jeans were inappropriate to wear, and she forced Tanya to wear dark forest green pair of polyester pants. Lavana then took scissors and shredded the jeans right in front of Tanya. Jesus. And they had some struggles financially, so the idea that, I mean, jeans in the 80s, not unlike jeans today, that's not cheap. So the idea that he spent money on that and she was like, ah, to learn a lesson, you know. Uh, when asked later in life how Tanya now handles that abuse from her childhood, she said, quote, drive a big truck and have a big dog. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Tanya believes the most, uh, most of the abuse stemmed from Lavana being an alcoholic, which, of course, Lavana denies. There are stories of Lavana filling a thermos half with coffee and half with brandy and consuming it at the rink at 4.30 in the morning. Lavana claims it was merely brandy flavoring, 
not actual brandy. Okay. According to Tanya, Lavana went through a gallon of brandy in a couple of days. And we haven't even done that. No. What was the size of the one of the vodka we did, though? Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was large. It, it was a lot for an evening. Yep, it was. Yeah. We were young and bounced back like nothing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tanya mentioned a story from her skating days when she went overseas for the first time. She brought home an Eiffel Tower crystal decanter full of brandy with the plan to save it for a celebration when she became an Olympic champion. Lavana allegedly opened it when she ran out of brandy at home, but we're talking like breaking the tip off of it to get into it. And then when she was done, throwing it away when it was empty. Tanya said, quote, that was something that I got for me as a memento of being over there, which is just sad to think that she bought that for herself and her mother broke it and used it and threw it out. But then there's also the slight psychologist in me that's like, but you did also get a decanter full of brandy, which yeah. is like your mother's go-to. So then I'm like, what does that say? Well, but then you can also flip it where it's like she connects that with like, was she trying to impress her mother? Oh, I wasn't saying it anyway in a negative for her. I'm. Oh, I see. I not, thought you were saying like that she was like trying to like tempt oh, her to get oh, a reaction. No. I'm thinking yeah. it was more like a look, see, I got this for us to have because she said she wanted to use it for to celebrate. And what's her mom's favorite thing? And that happened to be what she got. It could be that's the only thing she could get. And that looked super fancy. And she was like, I love this. Don't care what's in it. But it could also be, I bought this so that when I'm a champion, you'll be happy and you won't have a reason to be disappointed. Or it's, look, I made a good decision. You like Brandy. I Because oh. it seems that her mother undermined all of her decisions, right? That it was yeah. like, you're dumb, you're whatever. So it's like, well, she can't undermine this. I bought the thing that she likes. And then it's like, well, blew up oh. in your face too, well, didn't it? that's a good point. Uh, and this is nicely going to segue into one of the brief shining lights in Tanya's life, her skating. Lavana enrolled Tanya in skating lessons when Tanya was only three years old. Lavana took Tanya to the rink where Diane Rawlinson was a skating coach. Diane was a former ice capade soloist, former model, wine collector, and the wife of a prominent Oregon attorney. Lavana requested that Diane take on Tanya as a student. Lavana described Tanya's first time on the ice as, quote, Whatever the other people were doing, she turned around right behind them and did the same thing. She wasn't supposed to be able to do any of it, but she just went and did it. Which is probably the most positive thing I think she has ever said about her daughter. Even though Diane's typical students were much older than Tanya, she could see the natural talent that Tanya had for the sport and agreed to coach her. Diane would act as Tanya's coach from 1974 to 1989 and again in 1992. As with most sports, figure skating is expensive, especially when it came to competitions. Skaters were expect to have, expected to have pricey outfits, and at one point, they were expected to have fur coats, which, why? Stop. 
Uh, Lavana said, quote, I was working right around the clock, morning, noon, and night, trying to get money for her to skate and have lessons. I had to work sometimes two and three jobs a day trying to make ends meet. And sometimes, to help costs, Lavana had to sew Tanya's skating costumes or make her wear her figure skating costume to school on picture day so they could use the school photos as the photos they submitted to skating competitions. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when Tanya's natural talent started to show, Lavana started to see skating as a way out of their financial situation. Tanya's coach, Diane, once said, quote, skating for Tanya is her ticket out of the gutter. Which, interesting, but also... Don't like the term gutter, Diane. <laughs> well, yeah. Especially when she lives a very well-to-do. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's like, mm, okay, Diane. Uh, so Lavana pushed the skating. And while Tanya's father was supportive of her skating, Lavana's alleged abuse just became more public. Not only was there the incident where Lavana struck Tanya with a hairbrush while at a competition, apparently there were multiple times when Tanya who was a child at the time, would request to go to the bathroom mid-practice, and her mother would say, quote, I paid for you to practice, so you're going to stay on the ice and practice. Multiple witnesses from back then said they had seen Tanya forced to urinate on the ice. <gasps> and that was in I, Tanya, and that was accurate. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Coach Diane admitted that Tanya once lost a sponsor because of Lavana's public abuse. Again, Lavana denies any abuse and went so far as to say, quote, I thought I did everything I could for her. I really thought she'd love me for it. She didn't. <sighs> Jesus. But despite the hardships in her personal life, Tanya became a force of nature on the ice. She was able to do a triple lutz at the age of 12. A triple lutz is a jump in which the skater takes off from the back outside, spins and lands on the back outside of the opposite foot that they took off from. It's an extremely complicated jump because of the rotation the jump involves. But Tanya was successfully and consistently landing these at just 12 years old. Wow. In 1986, Tanya dropped out of school during her sophomore year to focus on skating full time. In 1988... She earned her GED. Oh. In the mid-1980s, Tanya worked her way up the competitive skating ladder. At the U.S. Figure Skating Women's Championships, she placed sixth in 1986, fifth in 87 and 88, and then took home the bronze in 1989. After competing in the national championships in February 1989, Tanya had a falling out with her coach, Diane Rawlinson, so she moved on to coach Dodie Teachman. With Dodie, Tanya went to on to win Skate America in October 1989 and was considered a strong contender at the 1990 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. In 1988, Tanya became the first American woman to win a Russian award as a figure skater. But 1991 was Tanya's true breakout year. On February 16, 1991, Tanya skated two perfect programs at the Senior Nationals and won her first national title. She received a 6.0 for technical merit, the first perfect score any woman had received in this competition in nearly two decades. During her title-winning program, Tanya attempted and landed the extremely difficult triple axel, 
By doing so, she became the first American woman and the only other woman in the world, besides Midori Ito of Japan, to even attempt the jump, let alone successfully perform it in a competition. Historical skating side note. Axel Paulson, who created the Axel, was the first person to land the jumping competition in 1882 International Figure Skating Competition in Vienna. In the early 1900s, professional German skater, oh boy, Charlotte Olschlagel? Wow. There's dots over stuff that I'm just guessing. Uh, Was the first woman to include an axle in her programs, and by the early 1920s, Sonja Henny from Norway was the first female skater to perform an axle in competition. The triple axle has become more common for male skaters, but as of 2021, only 12 women have successfully completed the triple axle in international competition. Of those 12, three were American, including Tanya Harding, uh, oh boy, Marie, Marai, Mariah uh, Nagasu, and Alyssa Liu, which brings me to a holy shit impressive side note. <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't really follow figure skating that closely. Unless it's Scott and Tessa, and then I'll watch it forever. Of course. Uh, so doing research uh, for this was my first time hearing the name Alyssa Liu. Uh, but I have to take a moment to mention the fact that Alyssa is a two-time national champion, the youngest ever U.S. women's national champion, because she won her first title at 13. Wow. She is also the youngest to win two national titles at 14. Alyssa is also the first junior American women's singles skater to successfully complete a triple axel in international competition and only the third American woman to do so overall. Again, she's like 15 or 16 now. So it's just wild. I just think of myself at 13 and I was like, (laughs) I couldn't run across the street. Like I... I could not have done that. Uh, Tanya also won a silver medal at the World Figure Skating Championships in 1991, a bronze medal at the Women's Championship in 1992. And before we get too far in Tanya's story, I guess it's time to mention the man who I am boldly going to say ruined Tanya's life. Mm. One day after practice, 15-year-old Tanya met 18-year-old Jeffrey Scott Galuli. Tanya was excited about Jeff as she was just searching for, quote, someone who loves me just for me. And while that's a very beautiful sentiment, uh, what do we know about Jeff? Well, Jeff Galuli was born September 15th, 1967 in Oregon. Jeff has been described as a, quote, calculating, self-centered, sexually deviant thug in search of an easy meal ticket. In March 1990, at the age of 19, Tanya married Jeff. Fifteen months later, she filed for divorce, and she even tried to get a restraining order as Jeff had become physically abusive. In the petition for the restraining order, Tanya wrote, quote, He wrenched my arm and wrist. He pulled my hair and shoved me. I recently bought, found out he bought a shotgun. I'm scared for my safety. Jesus. A police report filed the next month quotes Tanya as saying that Jeff had cornered her in a boatyard and threatened, quote, I think we should break your legs and end your career. 
Oh, my God. Unfortunately, in March 1992, Jeff and Tanya got back together because, according to Tanya, she couldn't make it on her own. Mm. The couple would continue to be off and on even after their divorce was finalized in 1993. At one point, Tanya told the press that she and Jeff were trying to get their divorce annulled and that she was, quote, definitely married. Which, okay. Uh, Now, from what I've read about Jeff, he's a real piece of work. Tanya said that by their second year of marriage, Jeff was, quote, heavy drinking. There was a lot of violence. He threatened my life. Jeff said, quote, might get into a little brawl every now and then, but she would win. So for Tanya, it just seemed like she went from one abusive, volatile relationship to another. She potentially married Jeff to escape her mother, but then Jeff also turned out to be physically and verbally abusive. Tanya Mm -hmm. said, quote, he didn't destroy me. Nobody can. Because even at the worst moments, Tanya had her skating. She toured with the Tom Collins Champions on Ice, and in 1992, Tanya decided it was time to go back to coach Diane Rawlinson. With Diane, Tanya competed in her first Olympics in Alberville, France in 1992. Tanya showed up three days before the Olympics, which apparently is shocking. Apparently, most athletes show up at least 10 days before the Olympics. Right. Uh, in the end, Tanya finished fourth right after another American skater named Nancy Ann Kerrigan. Ooh. Now, the thing about Tanya, while she was a natural and talented athlete who could do certain jumps that other skaters only ever dreamed of, she was not taken seriously in the skating community. Despite her skill level, Tanya was only ever judged based solely on her appearance. Tanya was a self-proclaimed tomboy. She loved Hot Wheels and hunting or fishing with her father. She wasn't the delicate, girly ice princess that people expected of a figure skater. She also was very known for, like, skating to, like, Leonard Skinnerd, as opposed to, like, Mozart or, right. you know, the boring crap that uh, most of them do. Uh, at one point, Tanya says she spoke with some, quote, high-up ice skating officials, and they told her she stood a greater chance of being successful if she appeared to have a wholesome, happy marriage. So despite the abuse that she incurred, Tanya would go back time and time again to Jeff to give the appearance of that wholesome, (sighs) happy family. Despite her attempt at portraying a happy home life, there were competitions where Tanya would still get lower scores than other skaters despite doing higher difficulty moves. Tanya says that she once approached judges uh, to ask why they always scored her so low. They looked her up and down and said maybe she should consider buying more expensive outfits. Mm. The idea that they are more concerned about what an athlete is wearing and not the actual performance is horrifying to me. And I know this is nothing new. It's just, you know, I hate it. There I go. I hate it. Yep. Uh, At the time, Tanya didn't have the money to buy elaborate costumes like most of her competition. For example, Nancy Kerrigan had her costumes made by Vera Wang. Yeah. And the thing about Nancy Kerrigan is that, like Tanya, she came from a blue-collar working-class background. However, unlike Tanya, Nancy's family appeared to be loving and supportive. So you would think 
that Tanya would understandably feel some resentment or jealousy towards Nancy, but to this day, Tanya can't possibly fathom why anyone would think she'd be jealous of someone like Nancy. Oh, boy. Mm, yeah. Oh, this is a fun one. Yeah. Oh, the psychologist hat. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, but at the time, Nancy Kerrigan was seen as a graceful, all-American girl. She was exactly what the Figure Skating Association had in mind when they thought of a professional skater. And the media kept pitting Tanya and Nancy against each other. But Tanya claims that women were they were actually friends because they used to room together when they did skating tours. However, anyone who was around them at the time said they absolutely were not friends. But they, did, they didn't notice any animosity between them. Right. Uh, but there was absolutely competition there. When Tanya won gold at the 1991 championships, Nancy placed third. Mm. Christy Yamaguchi placed second. I don't know why I felt the need to give the facts, but that's just me in a nutshell. I was um, happy to have them. A month later in Germany, Tanya won a silver medal at the World Championships, and Nancy won the bronze. Mm. And while Tanya was disappointed at narrowly missing out on the Olympic medal in 1992, she received hopeful news, which brings us to an Olympic side note. The Olympic game, Winter Olympic Games were held every four years from 1924 to 1936 when the Games stopped due to World War II. The Olympics resumed in 1948 and continued every four years. In 1986, the International Olympic Committee decided that the Summer and Winter Games should be held on separate four-year cycles in alternating even-numbered years. Due to this decision, the Winter Olympics would then take place in 1992 and 1994. And I'll say it, even though I was clearly alive at the time, I honestly do not remember ever the Olympics being in the same year. I only ever remember, oh yeah, the Olympics are just every two years. Mm -hmm. And that's wild to me that that changed. Uh, so after her Tanya's disappointing showing at the Olympics in 1992, she was given another chance. The thing is, at this point, Tanya wasn't practicing as much. She had started smoking, which isn't a good idea in general, but especially not if you have asthma like Tanya does. But before Tanya could go to the Olympics, she had to place well at the national championships in Detroit. These championships were considered to be the Olympic trials, and based on the standings, the Olympic Committee would choose two skaters to represent America at the Olympics. So both Tanya and Nancy head to Detroit. One day before the first ladies' singles competition on January 6, 1994, Nancy had a practice at the Kobo Arena. She left the ice with her coach, who stopped to talk with someone briefly, Nancy walked behind the curtain towards the dressing rooms at 2.35 p.m., and once she was out of view, all you could hear was the most high-pitched screeching, just wailing. News cameras were on the scene, uh, and they immediately follow the sound and find Nancy Kerrigan sitting on the floor in immense pain. Nancy said someone had hit her in the right knee with, quote, some hard, hard black stick, something really hard. 
Based on descriptions from witnesses, arena security started to rush around looking for a tall white guy in a leather jacket. The man in question ran to the exit, uh, ran to exit the building, but he came to a set of glass doors that were locked. Instead of finding another way out, he chose to break the glass glass doors. Now keep in mind, the assailant has the weapon that he hit Nancy with in his hand, but he didn't use that to break the glass doors. Instead, he smashed it open with his head. So we're talking real professionals here. Oh, boy. (laughs) But despite their obvious stupidity, uh, they initially got away. So camera crews have swarmed Nancy, and she's on the ground screaming, Why? Why? The weapon turned out to be a 21-inch collapsible baton, something like uh, the police use. On January 7th, a press conference was held saying that Nancy Kerrigan would not be skating at the national championships due to a, quote, thigh contusion or bruise associated with knee swelling. The leg that had been hit was Nancy's landing leg, and she was unable to currently put any weight on it. But the Olympic Committee still needed to decide who was going to represent the United States at the Olympics. So the championships went on without Nancy, and on January 8th, Tanya won gold, and silver went to 13-year-old Michelle Kwan. So traditionally, that would mean Tanya and Michelle would go to the Olympics. But these were unusual circumstances. Nancy was unfairly unable to compete, but the Olympics were only six weeks away. Would she be fully healed with her injury by then? Well, the Olympic Committee had a closed-door discussion and in the end decided that Tanya and Nancy would head to the Olympics. Now, at this point, people were freaking out about the attack. Who was the deranged attacker? Would he attack again? Why Nancy Kerrigan? And of course people had questions, because a famous athlete had been publicly attacked just eight months prior. The athlete in question was tennis star Monica Seles. Oh, that's right. Monica was born in former Yugoslavia in 1973. When she was 11 years old, she won the Orange Bowl tournament in Miami and moved to the United States. At the age of 14, Monica started to play professional tennis and won a tournament in Houston against Chris Everett in May 1989. And at the age of 16, Monica was ranked number six on the Women's Tennis Association list. In 1990, Monica defeated Steffi Graf and won the French Open in Paris. At the time, Steffi Graf was dominating tennis and would be dethroned by a, and to be dethroned by a 16-year-old was shocking especially to hardcore Steffi Graf fans. This win made Monica the youngest winner in the competition's history and boosted her rank to number one on the Women's Tennis Association's list. Oh, wow. In her teens, Monica won nine Grand Slams and 53 titles. Between January 1991 and February 1993, Monica reached 33 out of 34 finals, winning 22 of them. She achieved 159 wins and only 12 losses, making her win percentage 92.9%. On April 30th, 1993, Monica was playing in a quarterfinal match against Magdalena Maliva in in Hamburg. Hamburg? It's Hamburg. Is it Hamburg? Okay, great. I don't know. Oh, fuck. Now I want a burger. 
That's how it works. <laughs> uh, during the second set, a drink break was called, so Monica reached down to pick up her water bottle when she felt a sudden pain in her back. It turns out that a 40-year-old man named Gunter Par Parch uh, had stabbed Monica with a nine-inch long knife. Thankfully, he missed her spine and vital organs. Ugh. But who knows what would have happened if she hadn't bent down at that exact moment to... I mean, it could have ended completely differently. Uh, turns out Gunter uh, was a huge Steffi Graf fanatic, and he was not happy at the idea of Monica taking wins away from his beloved Steffi. So he packed a sausage, 3,000 Deutsch marks, and a kitchen knife and took a train from East Germany. After he attacked Monica, he tried to stab her again, but a bodyguard interfered. And because I know Lauren will appreciate it, I give you a background for the sake of your psychologist hat side note. Thank you. Gunter allegedly grew up without any affection. When he was eight, his mother gave him to his unmarried aunt to take care of him. Gunter never experienced love or bonding, never had a friend or a sexual encounter. Again, he was a 40-year-old man. After the unification of Germany, he lost his job in the Nordhausen Motor Factory. His only guiding light was Steffi Graf. Oof. He followed her every match on TV when Monica Seles defeated unbeatable Steffi in the finals of the Berlin tournament. Gunter wanted to commit suicide. Wow. Later, Monica won the French Open in 1990 and 1992, as well as in Australia in 1993. Now Gunter wanted to hurt Monica so she could never play again. In court, Gunter explained that Steffi had eyes like diamonds and hair like silk. Heaven had sent her to the German nation, a goddess to adore. Sometimes he'd send her letters, sometimes flowers, sometimes money, and sometimes he'd write to any journalist who criticized Graf because of her game. They'd better mind their words about her because he was there to protect her. Oh, boy. The expert witnesses at court concluded he was a fanatic with a severe personality disorder. In October 1993, Gunter was found guilty of causing grievous bodily injury. Prosecutors asked the judge to change the charge to attempted manslaughter and sentence him to prison. But a detective who spoke to Gunter after the attack said Gunter gave a really reasonable explanation that he didn't want to kill Monica or maim her for life. He just simply wanted her to be out of action for that game. And that's a rational choice, a right, sir? According to a detective, yeah. Yep. Uh, the yep. judge decided that Gunter belonged with a doctor, not in a jail. So Gunter was given a two-year suspended sentence. The only jail time he did was the six months between the attack and when the trial ended. The trial was like two days long. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure some will say the man is mentally ill. He should be with doctors and not in a prison because he didn't try to kill or maim her. But to that I say, sure, his intent was just to take Monica out of the running for a single tournament. However, what he ended up doing was causing Monica PTSD, anxiety, depression, and a sleep disorder. And if that wasn't bad enough after the attack, Monica gained some weight and the press 
just wouldn't stop asking her about it, which is gross. And can we just stop asking about people's weight? Please, God, stop. A hundred percent. Stop. Yeah. Uh, It took Monica two years before she was able to compete again. She came back to win a Grand Slam and even played the U.S. Open Finals against Steffi Graf. But after that, Monica didn't play again, which I find incredibly tragic. She lost everything, and that dude was just allowed to walk. So back in Detroit, this violent fan uh, was still fresh in everyone's minds. So people wondered if Nancy Kerrigan was attacked by a fan of some sort. But then a newspaper received an anonymous letter stating that Tanya, Jeff Galuli, and his friends had planned the attack on Nancy. And of course, news stations were living for this because the public couldn't get enough coverage. And the lead up to the Olympics was huge because everyone wanted to see Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan battle it out. Which brings me to a section that I have called Sports Rivalry Side Note. Oh! Now, yes, of course, as long as there have been sports, there have been heated rivalries. Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears, Ohio State and Michigan, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, Manchester United and Liverpool. But the specific rivalries that caught my eye are the ones that turned violent? (laughs) Um... On August 22nd, 1965, during a Major League Baseball game between the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Giants pitcher uh, hit the Dodgers catcher in the head with a bat. Oh, oh boy. Multiple times to the point where the guy ended up with a two-inch cut on his head. Uh, The Giants ended up winning the game four to three. And there's just no word on what set him off. <laughs> yep. Jesus. Unsettling. Uh, March 17th, 1991, a hockey game between the Chicago Blackhawks and the St. Louis Blues would come to be known as the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. Chicago won the game 6-4, to four, but there were so many fights during the first two periods that it resulted in 278 penalty minutes including 24 minor, 12 major, and 17 misconduct penalties. Wow. Which doesn't feel like a fun game to watch. No, it doesn't at all. But I love this because this is where I'm at. Uh, I haven't thought of it in years and it just came to me when I read the word uh, St. Louis Blues. Uh, Because I can, shout out to Chris Pronger and Reed Lowe. (laughs) 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 I have a Reed Lowe jersey. In my closet. I can't think about it. I'm fine. Oh my God, he's the new Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> Nobody's the new Jonathan Frakes. So sorry. I'm so sorry for no. even suggesting. No, you're right. The thing is, I think I think there's just height. I don't know. For me, Reed Lowe was like, um, I found out I was working at a store in the mall years ago when I was like late teens, early 20s. And somebody came in the store and I was like, that kind of looked like Reed Lowe, but it would never happen, whatever. And it turns out my boss knew him. And I had to go to the back room to have just a full panic attack of what had just happened in my life. And uh, the next time I worked, she was like, 
I got this. He gave this to us once and I was just like, I don't want it. Do you want it? And she pulled it out and it was a Reed Low jersey and I almost vomited and peed at the same time. <laughs> I don't know what my problem is. She is who she one. is. She's the girl fiddling with her dress, talking to boys. That's who, yep. she, that's who she's always been. Yep. Uh, on June 28th, 1997, boxers Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield were set to have a long-awaited rematch. At one point during the match, Tyson bit off a piece of Holyfield's ear. He was sanctioned with permanent suspension from boxing, and his license was indefinitely canceled. And that was the moment I learned you have a license for boxing? Huh. Uh, November 19th, 2004, a basketball game between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons would come to be known as Malice, Malice at the Palace. The Palace. Yeah. Players claimed it all started with hard fouls, which made the gameplay more aggressive. And by the end of the game, the fans were pissed. One player fouled another, which led to a shoving match. And then a player on the bench threatened to kill somebody. A fan threw a drink from the stands, hitting a player who then climbed into the stands after the fans. And that just made the fans storm the court, and it was mayhem. After that, the NBA increased security at games and added a limit on how much alcohol could be sold at games. Nine players involved in the brawl were suspended for 146 games combined, which resulted in a loss of $11 million in unearned salary. Oof. The main player involved, who went into the stands after the fan, uh, was suspended for the rest of the season, which included 73 regular season games and 13 playoff games, and he lost nearly $5 million in unearned salary. There's actually a documentary. Netflix is doing a series of these documentaries about, like, uh, crazy moments in sports, et cetera. And sure. I'll watch a documentary on anything. And there's a great one on Malice in the Palace. And uh, it gets into all of that. It's a fascinating kind of story. Um, and it's a, it's a quick watch. I think it's yeah. only like an hour. Uh, <laughs> but the one detail I have to share very quickly is uh, the police basically were looking at footage to see who started this fight, whatever. Sure. And it was started by this guy in, in the stands. And the police officer literally went, oh, my God, that's my neighbor. <laughs> so then literally was like, I I know where he lives. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll just deal like, with this right chances? at the end. Of, I'll leave. I'll leave work a little bit early. I'll arrest him while I'm still on shift and then go to bed, yeah. you know, like yeah. while I'm there. Do I have to come all the way back? Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Like. Something professional for work. Viewing footage. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that person. Like, I can't even, like, I'd like to believe every time Crime Stoppers, they post, like, a video and they're like, do you recognize this person? And I always look, like, really hard because I'm like, <laughs> I need to know. I need to help solve a crime. Um, and then there are people who always tag friends as like a joke and they're like, ha ha, it's this person. And I'm like, eh, you're not helping. You're obstructing justice. Thank you. Yes. And every time I'm like, I think I know them. I never do. Yeah. I'm just like, no, I know like five people like, stop it. <laughs> you're not going to know them. It's not going to be your neighbor. But what if it was? 
Exactly. And listen, the other quick thing I wanted to add to sports rivalries uh, was, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this because, uh, of course, the Toronto Blue Jays and the Texas Rangers, uh, people know that during the last pennant race that the Blue Jays were in, Joey Bats, Jose Bautista, uh, threw a the infamous bat flip moment. Sure, yeah, he, yeah. He hit he hit a home run, and he was like, "Oh, it's an extremely hot moment." If you ask me, of course. Uh, but this, of course, enraged the Texas Rangers, and then I believe it was the next season. Don't don't kill me. It was I'm, my brain is. I'll Google it in a minute. But anyway, long story short, uh, the next time they came face to face, Odor, who was playing for the uh, Texas Rangers at the time just punched Joey Bats in the face. <laughs> just <laughs> punched Jose Bautista in the face. We're okay. Talking both dugouts cleared. Uh, giant brawl on Oof. the field. I mean, yeah. Well, I yeah. could not be sadder that I didn't be, I wasn't able to bring that up because it didn't come up in my most violent uh, research that I was looking at. But I'm also happy that I didn't. So that you could have your time to shine. I had a moment. And listen, I don't know that it was, I, it was not as violent as the ones that you listed for sure. But it was just, I mean, it's rare to see a baseball game have that happen. So, you know, and again, sports. Uh, now, listen, <laughs> let's take a quick break. I have yeah. already so many thoughts. I, I, I want to get into them, but I want to save them till the end. You know what I mean? Sure. So take a break, get a drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back with more things about Tanya Harding on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking, of course, about Tanya Harding. And on the break, I just want to say, I googled that Toronto Blue Jays information, and of course, I was 100% correct. I love that I'm so terrified because, men... You've done this to us. <laughs> because I know a lot about the Blue Jays and baseball, but we're put under such a microscope that if you get any tiny detail wrong, we get attacked. So I second-guessed yep. myself, and I tried to kind of skirt around the details, but of course I was correct in what I was saying. Do you have the jersey on right now that you were referencing? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I knew it was uh I knew it was in my closet cuz I have a I keep all my uh I don't have a lot but I keep all of my jerseys in um in the closet and I'm going to say something to you. I apologize uh for snapping. 
about Jonathan Frakes. Oh, because you know what? One, you didn't deserve it. And two, (laughs) you were right. Uh, Because see, now I've had time to think about Jonathan. So I've had time to be like, Jonathan, let's do lunch. (laughs) Oh, I couldn't eat in front of him. (laughs) But like, Reed Lowe just brings me back to, yeah. I also don't know if I can keep this on. Uh, because I was already very hot before. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's it is where it is. But when we came back from the break, because we always have that small moment that we speak before we hit record again, um, I did have a blanket up to my neck so that you would have this reveal <laughs> while we were recording. What's amazing <laughs> is I noticed that you had the, the blanket pulled up, and I thought nothing of it. I was like, maybe she's cold. Like I just I didn't even question it. But I and I love that I was going on my rant about patriarchy, and then as I yeah. looked over, I was like, she's pulled that she's pulled the GD jersey out of the closet. And I could not love her more. <laughs> Good lord! I really, uh, I really did. I thought about uh, the moment we were like, and we're back. Start like un- undo my uh, earbuds, and then just start putting the jersey on but i'm like if you say i'll miss everything you say so but then i also don't want the jersey over top of you know it's a whole thing but yeah great reveal and the joke of this moment is this isn't even my team well, I, I i played flyers well for and reed, i know that's for reed low it looks like you might be willing to cross yeah. cross the aisle and if you think i'm not physically ill right now wearing this because he he autographed it and I'm like, what if I what if I wreck it? You're literally just sitting here. You'll be fine. Where did he, he autograph spilled, it? On the front? He, he autographed his number on the back. I will say it might it would be difficult to somehow ruin that. But yes. if there was ever a couple of chuckleheads that could mess something <laughs> up on the back of a shirt, like yeah. I somehow got barbecue sauce on, <laughs> on my right shoulder blade, it would be us. So a hundred percent. I validate which is why your I fear. don't wear this ever but if there was ever gonna be a moment this was it this was it i had to once i was like you know what i actually i haven't thought of that jersey in years i bet i still have it in there and i went to like beeline for the spot and it was right there and i was like i have to and it anything for a bit anything for a bit anything for a bit i also can't wait to uh, pass by my husband as I walk out of this room and have him be like, why are you okay? Like, just, (laughs) I don't understand. When did you get that? And it's like, I lived a thousand lives before I met you. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. I don't either. And I love it. (laughs) I'm all over the place. Oh, well, you're in my heart. Uh, That's where you are. You're in my heart. God, again, so hot, but I'm going to wear it at least to the next break. Yeah. <laughs> or the end, depending on what happens first. If I end up passing out over heat, just like, I'll be fine. Just give me I'll, a minute. I'll call your husband if that happens. <laughs> I'll, inf- I'll let him know. I'll let him it's know. It's for the best. It's for the best. He'll figure it out. All right. And then again, you why why were you wearing that? It's You'll understand in a week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... We know CBS, who has the rights to the Olympics, was beyond excited for the Harding-Kerrigan matchup at the Olympics because they knew that the bigger the rivalry, the bigger the audience is going to be. 
and the rivalry was noticeable, but after the incident at the Kobo Arena, the public was invested. Then a newspaper received the anonymous letter claiming that Tanya, her husband Jeff, and his friends were involved in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. Now the Olympic Committee has to decide whether or not they're going to let Tanya compete. They know Tanya didn't personally assault Nancy, but if Tanya was involved in any way, they didn't feel that Tanya should be able to compete. In February 1994, the Olympic Committee were going to remove Tanya from competition, but then Tanya filed a $10 million lawsuit against them, and the committee settled out of court and agreed to let her skate. Whoa. Yeah. But at practices, it is custom for the athletes from the same country to all practice together. So that meant that Tanya and Nancy would have to share the ice on February 16th, 1994, for the first time since the incident. And what did Nancy do? That bold lady showed up to the practice in the exact same white lacy outfit that she was wearing on the day she was attacked. Whether it was done to psych out her competition or simply to try and mentally turn things around for herself, I don't know. Either way, I applaud it. Yeah. Because it felt ballsy. Even if it came down to she literally had no other outfits, which I doubt, I just really responded to the ballsiness of it. Totally. Uh, So February 25th, 1994, Tanya took the ice at the Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer, Norway, Unfortunately, not only was she late, uh, like they announced her name and she almost didn't come out at all, but once she was out, she had issues with a broken skate lace during her long program. It forced Tanya to stop after a single jump and skate over to the judges. There are so many pictures of her with her skate up on the, on the bench or whatever, you know, almost in tears telling them there's an issue. Uh, at the moment... Tanya was under immense pressure and scrutiny, and she was blaming her missed jump on some sort of skate issue. So she went to the judges looking for sympathy, and at the time, most of the public had decided they were Team Nancy. But fortunately for Tanya, the public didn't get a say in when it came to skating rules, and the judges agreed to let her restart her program. However, Tanya was clearly unable to mentally shake off her previous start, and in the end, she finished eighth. After the short program, Nancy was in first, and after the long program, the crowd gave Nancy a standing ovation. So it was a bit of a surprise when Nancy Kerrigan took silver. The public truly believed that Nancy was a shoe-in for the gold. So when she came in second, everyone was stunned especially when the gold medal went to 16-year-old Oksana Bayul from the Ukraine, who won by one-tenth of a point. Oh, right. Nancy was livid. There ended up being a slight delay prior to the medal ceremony, and Nancy was told Oksana needed to reapply her makeup, which apparently was not true. Uh, Apparently, they were trying to find her... uh, the Ukrainian national anthem and they were struggling. So that was taking a while. Yeah. But blame the Uh, woman, blame the woman. She has to put put on her makeup. Yep. That's nice. And uh, a camera happened to be in Nancy's face, whether she noticed or not. Uh, And she said, quote, Oh, come on. She's just going to get out here and cry again. What's the difference? So 
she, of course, did not know the real reason for the delay. And I get it. She came back from this injury in a matter of weeks, and her programs were technically flawless. But Oksana's skate was better. Nancy's sass was not a good look. Yeah. But somehow, the public still loved her. And if the press wasn't hounding Tanya enough in early 1994 already, Jeff sold a sex tape of him and Tanya to Penthouse for $200,000 plus residuals. Tanya said the couple had received a video camera as a wedding present and that she truly believed the video was just for them. Tanya even claims that she had forgotten about the tape until her lawyer called her in 1994 to say, there was an emergency. Oh my God. And that's, that's when Tanya found out that Jeff had sold their sex tape and that it was being released under the title Tanya and Jeff's Wedding Night. And of course, this just made the press go after Tanya that much more. And while it seems that this was a move that Jeff simply made for money, all it did was further hurt Tanya's image. Camera crews were camped out at Tanya's house, constantly hounding her. There were even some reporters who later admitted that they slashed her tires or had her car towed just to force her outside so they could get a picture. Ugh. She was under a public microscope at all times, which leads me to a very quick tea spill and side note. Oh. Now, while all of this is going on and the press is absolutely hounding Tanya... The press seemed to be ignoring the fact that Nancy Kerrigan had started a relationship with Jerry Solomon. Who was Jerry Solomon? Oh, he was just Nancy's manager, uh, who was married at the time and had two children. Oh, wow. Jerry's wife said, quote, Nancy stole my husband. Behind that pearly white smile and piercing blue eyes lies a cold-hearted temptress. Everyone thinks of her as a national heroine, but she broke up my family. She made my life a living hell, and that's where she deserves to burn. Wow! She went for it. Uh, But again, this is not something I ever heard anything about. No! Because Nancy was only ever portrayed as the victim. Allegedly, Jerry became Nancy's manager in 1992, and he separated from his wife in October 1993. Nancy and Jerry are adamant that their relationship didn't start until 1994, and they were married in September 1995. At the time of their wedding, Nancy was 25 and Jerry was 41. Okay. Yeah. And as Jerry was her manager, and apparently incredibly good at his job, despite not winning the gold medal, Nancy was raking in endorsement deals. The press and goodwill that she got from the incident made her beloved to the American public, and it really helped establish her a full career for herself. But back to Tanya. Hmm. Once it was suggested that Tanya and Jeff might be involved in the attack on Nancy, the couple were both interrogated by the FBI. Tanya's interview lasted 10 hours. Whoa. And on July 12th, or July, Jesus, on January 12th, (laughs) 1994, Sean Eckhart, who had been acting as Tanya's bodyguard, confessed to his involvement in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. And not only that, but Sean also incriminated Shane Stant and Jeff Galuli in the attack and claimed that Derek Smith was the getaway driver. 
26-year-old Sean Eckhart and 29-year-old Derek Smith were both charged with conspiracy to commit assault in the second degree. And when Sean was arrested, he told the cops everything. (laughs) Everything. Sean claimed that at Jeff's request, Sean hired Derek Smith and Shane Stant, Derek's nephew, to attack Nancy Kerrigan. Shane was allegedly going to be paid $100,000 for his part in the incident. Sean also claimed he had training in counter-espionage and counter-terrorism, which he does not. (laughs) I was going to say. He absolutely does not. He's also a massive idiot who claimed in an interview he'd never met Tanya Harding. Even though he was acting as her bodyguard and there were photos and video of them together throughout the entire Olympics. Classic. Uh, But even before telling the cops everything, Sean just couldn't keep his mouth shut. He told friends, family member, a priest, literally anyone he ran into, um, that he was the one who pulled off the Kerrigan hit. Yeah. But Sean was very clear that Jeff had asked Sean to hire some men to attack Nancy, and that Shane Stant did the physical attack while Derek Smith was the getaway driver. And it should be said that none of these men are known for their wits. In fact, Sean Eckhart was specifically described as, quote, dumb as a post. (laughs) (laughs) These guys bumbled their way through the entire plan, but they earned the award for dumbest criminals alive as the flights and hotel rooms they paid for to go to Detroit for the attack they paid for with their own credit cards. And they signed in at the hotel using their full actual names. Not exactly a smart move uh, to give the police proof that you were in the exact area at the exact time of the attack. Yeah. Great paper trail, though. A hundred percent. On January 27th, Jeff Galuli surrendered to the FBI just four days after a warrant for his arrest had been issued. Jeff confessed he had orchestrated the assault, but he also claims that Tanya was in on the plan. Jeff said, quote, Of course she did. I think most people know she did. Jeff also claimed that not only was Tanya in on the plan, but that she was also angry that it hadn't happened sooner. Tanya responded with a statement to the press that said, quote, Despite my mistakes and rough edges, I have done nothing to violate the standards of excellence in sportsmanship that are expected in an Olympic athlete. Tanya announced she had no prior knowledge of the attack, but that she failed to come forward after she learned information when she returned home after the Nationals. Right. On February 1st, in exchange for a lighter sentence, Jeff Galuli testified against Tanya and pled guilty to the crime of racketeering. Jeff admitted that he sat around with his friends two days after Christmas in 1993 and hatched the plan. Jeff allegedly offered each of the hitmen $6,500. Now, the men allegedly discussed staging a car accident, but then chose the knee whacking instead. I think they couldn't have possibly figured out mentally a car accident. Uh, My question, though, is Tanya and Jeff were always hard up for money. So where did he get the nearly $20,000 to offer these men? Yeah. Or did he just offer it knowing he would never actually pay them? 
I don't know. Uh, so Jeff confesses to the whole thing, and days later, Kathy Peterson, the owner of Dockside Saloon, was putting a bag of garbage in their dumpster out back when she opened the lid and noticed other garbage in there. It was clearly not their garbage from the restaurant, and it is illegal to dump your garbage in someone else's dumpster, so Kathy grabs a bag and opens it to find out who was illegally dumping. And there's just a bunch of paper, including a figure skating association check receipt, an envelope with Jeff Galuli's name on it, and a paper covered in names, dates, phone numbers, and just doodles. Some of the writing on the paper included both the location and times when Nancy Kerrigan was scheduled to practice. <laughs> Tanya claims she never wrote it and that she'd never seen the paper before. A handwriting expert was brought in who said, that writing matches Tanya's. When asked if Nancy and her manager believed that Tanya was involved in the attack, Nancy's manager said, quote, Nancy had the benefit of reading the FBI documents, so she has a pretty good understanding of exactly what was going on. Interpret that in any way you want. Mm. You cheated on your wife, bastard. Like, <laughs> we already don't care what you have to say. Yeah. Uh, Tanya, told the Tanya told the FBI that she overheard Jeff and his friends talking about the attacks days after, but that she didn't say anything because Jeff and two men that she didn't know allegedly raped her at gunpoint to keep her quiet. This was the second time that Tanya says she was sexually assaulted as she had been the victim of an acquaintance rape in 1991, which that is all I know about that particular thing. And I also don't think we want to go into it further anyway. Yeah. And yeah, this jersey's hot, but like read low hot, done. Hello. Stop. Hello. Stop. I just like he came in. I can't. <laughs> you're right. You're right. He's the new Reed Lowe because I'm thinking well, he's new back. Frakes. And, you just said Reed Lowe instead of Frakes. He's, new, he's he, oh, fuck. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. You're right. You're right. He's the new Frakes. I've lost my mind. I mean, Frakes, you're still there, bud. But <laughs> <laughs> wow, how the, the mighty is, do fall. <laughs> Mentally, I have reverted back to. That kid, I can say that. I was maybe like 19 or 20. Uh, that kid standing in that store and being like, is that? Oh, my God. Is he? What do I do? And the answer is not help him. Like, just leave him to his own devices. <laughs> and my boss was there and he was there to speak with her. But huh? like, I had like a full this for like 20 minutes, like crouched over trying to breathe and. It's all, all coming back to it's me. It's all coming back. It's all coming back to her now. Can't pay for it. All right, moving on. No, no, we can't. Uh, so Tanya would later claim about one to two months prior to the attack, she overheard Jeff and his friends saying, quote, maybe we should take someone out so she can make the team, which is not the story she originally told police, but also at the same time, you didn't think she could make the fucking team on her own? Be supportive. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, on March 16th, 1994, Tanya accepted a plea bargain in which she pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution. 
Tanya was sentenced to three years supervised probation, 500 hours of community service, a $100,000 state fine, and tasked with setting up a $50,000 fund to benefit the Special Olympics. She was also required to reimburse the Multnomah County Prosecutor's Office $10,000 in legal fees, undergo psychiatric examination, and participate in court-ordered treatment. On June 30, 1994, the United States Figure Skating Association Disciplinary Board stripped Tanya of her U.S. championship title that she had earned in January and banned Tanya from the U.S. FSA for life. And the worst part is, this whole incident skyrocketed the popularity of figure skating and made it a mainstream popular American sport, which meant that it allowed for figure skating tours to be sold out and for skaters to make a lot of money. Suddenly, figure skaters were on the cover of magazines and on talk shows. They became overnight celebrities, and most of them financially profited off of it. Except for Tanya Harding. But Tanya had nothing else to fall back on. She dedicated her whole life to skating, and now she wouldn't be able to reap the benefits that her fellow skaters were earning. But somehow, despite the ban, which I never figured out how this happened, Tanya later competed at the ESPN Pro Skating Championship in 1999, and she placed second. Ah, well, I think that's because it's professional, and I think technically— I assume it's different than the FSA or— Yeah. Yeah, I assume that's the loophole, but— Must be. um, And what else happened to Tanya after the whole scandal? I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) So to answer that question— we bring to my section that I've entitled, Where Are They Now? Where Are They Now? Yeah, I just, I need to hit a button. I and know. It's, I, I don't even need the button. I've got you. Well. So I'm going to go through some of these folks because uh, we all want to know. We all want to know. Yep. Nancy Kerrigan and her husband, Jerry Solomon, are still together. Wow. They, the couple have three children. Wow. Apparently, they battled years of infertility and, you know, losses, and it was a whole thing, but they have three children. I don't know what's going on with his original, the two children he had with mm. his previous wife. Uh, after the Olympics, Nancy turned professional, focusing her career on ice shows. She appeared in shows such as Ice Wars, Champions on Ice, Broadway on Ice, and... An ice show adaptation of the musical Footloose? Hmm. In 1994, Nancy Kerrigan hosted episode 15 on the 19th season of Saturday Night Live. Aretha Franklin was the musical guest. During the opening monologue, Nancy took questions from the audience, uh, which included Melanie Hutzel as Tanya Harding, Rob Schneider as Jeff Kaluli, Chris Farley as Sean Eckert, and David Spade as Oksana Bayou. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to need to view that. I'm going to yeah. need to find that. Yeah. I will say this. Uh, no offense, Nancy, but just flat. Yeah. yeah. I, that's, I mean, that's I, I mostly... to be what you get. Yeah. I mostly want to see uh, 
David Spade is Oksana Bayul. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, in 2003, Nancy became a national spokeswoman for Fight for Sight, a nonprofit organization that funds medical research in vision and ophthalmology. Oh, I didn't think I'd get through that word. Nice. Uh, after studying business at Emmanuel College in Boston, Nancy created the Nancy Kerrigan Foundation, which aims to raise awareness and support for the visually impaired. Hmm. Her mother, Brenda, is legally blind. Oh. So I guess that's where all this comes from. So Sean Eckhart, dum-dum number one, <laughs> uh, changed his name to Brian Griffith. He started a computer business in 2001, but according to state records, it dissolved in 2005. Mm. Brian was sentenced to three years probation for a misdemeanor assault in 2001. And he died in 2007 at the age of 40 from unknown causes. Interesting. Mm. Uh, Derek Smith, who was the driver, the getaway driver, was living in Montana in 2013, and his current whereabouts are unknown. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. Shane Stant, who uh, was the gentleman who actually did the physical assault, uh, served 14 months in prison for the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. He currently lives in Southern California, and that is... All the information the internet has about him, I don't know if he changed his name or not, but everywhere else seemed to let me know when other people change their names. So I don't like that the most violent of them, but also one of the other idiots, because he is the guy who smashed a glass door open with his own face. Right, right, right. Uh, I just don't like that he's just running around doing stuff. Uh, Jeff Galuli was released from prison in March 1995, and when he realized the notoriety that came with his name, he changed his name to Jeff Stone. Mm. In the years since, he's been arrested on charges of assault, DUI, and driving with a suspended license. He has also declared bankruptcy, been sued almost a dozen times, oh my God. and has been dealt multiple restraining orders. Oof. In 1991... While he was still married to Tanya, Jeff met Nancy Sharkey while she was giving him a manicure at her salon. I have a lot of questions. Jeff and Nancy got married on August 17th, 1995, and shortly after opened Nancy Nicole's hair and tanning salon. The couple had a daughter, Haley, in 1996 and a son, Noah, in 1997. Years later, Nancy died by suicide after years of battling substance abuse. Oh. Jeff married Christy Novaseo Novaggio uh, in 2012. He is currently a car salesman. Hmm. And the last thing I'm going to say about Jeff is a quote uh, from an interview he did. Quote, The most common question I'm ever asked, if it comes up, do you regret what you did? I guess that's kind of a yes and no question. Yes, it was pretty darn stupid. It was pretty ridiculous. But in the same instance, I'm a big believer if you in how you lay out your life and how each step you take, each opportunity you use, whether for good or for bad, kind of leads you down the road. I'm really happy with my life. I'm really happy with the way it's turned out. 
I've got two beautiful kids with my ex-wife, and I've got a lot of good friends. What's there to regret? Not much. I just... Other than ruining Tanya's life and career and all of the above? And the Mm -hmm. abuse and the arrests and... Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's a winner. Mm. Uh, Tanya's father, Albert, unfortunately passed away April 1st, 2009, at the age of 76. Mm. Tanya's mother, Lavana, is now known as Sandy Golden. Okay. Uh, which was the last name of her fifth husband. And it's believed she's been married at least seven times, but I can't confirm or deny. Mm. Uh, after the Kerrigan attack, Lavana allegedly sold baby pictures of Tanya to the press and even once got paid to wear a wire in the hopes that Tanya would confess to her involvement. Just a garbage human. Uh-huh. Uh, after that, Tanya and Lavana's relationship became non-existent. Mm. At the end of I, Tanya, it gives an update on where certain people from the story are now. And the mention of her mother says, quote, last Tanya heard, Lavana was living in Washington State behind a porn shop. <laughs> Does she live behind a porn shop? I don't know. It drives me crazy. She's such a huge part of the story. And yet there's just so little about her out there. Uh, so for the most part, Lavana is Living a fairly quiet life. I guess so. But Tanya has zero interest in any relationship with her. Yeah. Uh, Tanya has always said, quote, I wasn't going to grow up like my mother. I was going to be better. After the events in 1994, Tanya's life was a real roller coaster. In 1995, Tanya fronted a girl band called The Golden Blades. Wow. They even once appeared as a warm-up act for Cool in the Gang. Unfortunately, their music was drowned out by booing, and after three songs, they had to leave the stage due to a flurry of bottles being thrown at them. Oh. Oh, and did I mention the event was a fundraiser for muscular dystrophy? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The idea that it was so bad that people booed at a charity event. Uh, My favorite quote regarding Tanya's singing was, quote, she got to the point where she was pretty good, but well, she's a skater. (laughs) Oof. Uh, Also in 1995, Tanya married a naval electric engineer named Michael Smith. Unfortunately, the marriage only lasted 99 days, as Tanya said, quote, He hit me, pushed me down the stairs, we went for counseling with a pastor for a month, but that didn't work, so I filed for divorce. I was never going to let that happen to me again. The couple divorced officially in 1996. After the end of her second marriage, Tanya started to have regular sessions with a psychologist, who prescribed her antidepressants. When mentioning the psychologist, Tanya quickly adds, Well, not because I was wacky, because I'd been raped and abused. Mm. And now I only wanted to say this particular point. uh, Because I know that seeking professional help has this huge stigma to it. But if talking to a professional is what you need, there should not be any shame in it. So I find it just so sad that she felt she had to give a reason for entering therapy. One, it's not our business. Two, you've seen some shit. Three, 
if it makes you feel better, fine. But it was how quickly she was like, well, I'm not crazy. Like, well, I'm developing a... Of course. A theory in my mind here. But yes, I mean, it's, it, therapy is nothing anybody should yes. be ashamed of, certainly. But I, it appears that perhaps her perception of that is different. A hundred percent. I'm just saying, like, the overarching stigma on therapy is bullshit. Yeah. Um, and I know I've already said that we need to let go of judging or asking about someone's weight. But now I'm asking for us to also let go of the stigma on therapy because I'm never going to stop asking humans to be better. Yeah. <laughs> That's where yes. I'm at. Yes. Uh, in 1996, Tanya had a small part in a movie called Breakaway. I chose not to see it. Uh, I didn't have the time anyway, but for some reason, I feel like Tanya probably prefers that I didn't. <laughs> so mm. I'm just going to let that go. Uh, October 29th, 1996, Tanya was thrust back into the media spotlight after using mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to help revive an 81-year-old woman who collapsed at a bar in Portland. Oh. And before you think she was only going to get positive press. It was reported on February 22nd, 2000, Tanya attacked her then-boyfriend, Darren Silver, repeatedly punching him in the face and throwing a hubcap at his head. Oh. The attack left Darren with a bloodied face, and Tanya was arrested. She initially pled not guilty to misdemeanor charges, but months later at trial, she admitted to attacking Darren and was sentenced to three days in jail. 10 days of community service, and a suspended jail sentence of 167 days. Wow. Tanya also became a familiar face in the massive world of reality television. In 2002, she fought against Paula Jones on the Fox Network celebrity boxing event. This led to Tanya, a.k.a. Tanya TNT Harding, making her women's professional boxing debut. Um, February 2003, uh, she did another celebrity boxing match on The Man Show. Uh, in March 2004, Tanya was meant to fight Tracy Carlton, but the fight was called off after Tanya allegedly received a death threat. Oh, my God. Tanya's asthma forced her boxing career to come to an end. Her overall records were three wins, three losses. Okay. Still in reality TV, Tanya appeared on the game show The Weakest Link 15 Minutes of Fame edition oh, in God. 2002. Another contestant from that episode was Kato Kalin, just to give you an idea of the caliber of contestants <laughs> that they had. Got it. In March 2008, Tanya became a commentator on the show World's Dumbest, and she was even featured on an episode that focused on record breakers. In 2009, Tanya set a new land speed record for a vintage gas coupe with a speed of just over 97 miles per hour or 156 kilometers per hour. She was driving a 1931 Ford Model A named Lickety Split. And yes, this is completely real. <laughs> All wow. of those words I've said are real. Uh, in 2018, Tanya was a contestant on season 26 of Dancing with the Stars. It was a special athletes edition. Um, and she finished in third place. Okay. Fun competitive side note. 
Nancy Kerrigan was a contestant on season 24 of Dancing with the Stars. She placed sixth or seventh. It was a double elimination week, so I don't know which one uh, she went. People are all like a bit snarky that she got eliminated because apparently her scores were higher than the people who got eliminated or than the people who got saved and she was eliminated anyway. I chose not to watch it. That wasn't my style and I didn't have time. And America's sweetheart, not so sweet no more. Right? Yeah. Uh, But when Nancy Kerrigan was on it, it was a regular season. So it was 12 contestants. She outlasted five of them. Tanya's season, there was only 10 contestants, but she outlasted seven of them. Mm. So, I mean, there's a win for you. Uh, oh. uh, in 2019, Tanya won season 16 of Worst Cooks in America Celebrity Edition. In August 2019, Harding was seen in a television commercial promoting direct auto insurance. And we can't talk about Tanya's life since the incident without mentioning I, Tanya. In 2014, screenwriter Stephen Rogers watched an ESPN documentary about Tanya, and he was intrigued. He reached out to her and offered her $1,500 for her whole life story. He said he would, it would be more if the movie actually got made. I, Tanya was released in 2017 and stars Margot Robbie as Tanya. Allison Janney as Tanya's mother, Lavana, and the most generous casting of all, Sebastian Stan as Jeff Galuli. <laughs> Jeff, you are no Sebastian, and you never will be. <laughs> <laughs> Where we're at. Allison Janney, uh, who I love, uh, shout out to Allison Janney, uh, won a BAFTA, SAG Award, Golden Globe, and an Oscar for her performance as Lavana. Outside of television, Tanya has worked as a welder, a painter, and a hardware sales clerk at Sears. Currently, Tanya is a landscaper, deck builder, and house painter living in Washington State. She married Joseph Price on June 23, 2010. They met at a restaurant called Timbers, uh, where Tanya was having drinks with friends, and Joseph, who works in heating and air conditioning, uh, was singing karaoke. What song was he singing? Great Balls of Fire. Hello. Synergy. 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 And if, if you don't know why that's synergy, dear listeners, check out the Jerry Lee Lewis episode. There you go. I rage a lot <laughs> in that episode. It's nice. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to get it out. Uh, Tanya said she proposed within weeks of meeting Joseph and that she was pregnant within those same weeks. The couple had a son named Gordon on February 19th, 2011. And the part that wrecked me the most about I, Tanya, is at the very end, it says, quote, Tanya wants everyone to know she's a good mother. I'm sure she does. Which is, you know. She has uh, an M.O. Mm. Hmm? <laughs> uh, Tanya has said Lavana has never met her grandson and that Tanya has no plans to ever change that. She said, quote, I don't want her anywhere near me. I don't want her anywhere near my son. She wants forgiveness. She wants to see me. She wants to make amends. She wants to meet and be a part of the family. Hell no. 
So yeah, there's still a lot of anger there. Um, in interviews, when Tanya talks about her mother or Nancy Kerrigan, she flies into a rage, like, at the blink of an eye. Um, she once said, quote, when I'm being a bitch, people will know where I got it from. So there's that. Uh, Tanya said, quote, with my husband and my son, I got my second chance in life to be loved and to be happy. So once again, we're talking about a woman who just desperately wanted to be loved, but in the end got treated poorly by those who were closest to her. And since we've caught up with the main characters of this story to find out where they are now, I thought we should do the same for the 1994 incident. And I know what you're thinking. An incident can't be doing something new, Christy. It happened in the past. And I get that. But sometimes something happens that has such an incredible impact on pop culture or the media or the world in general. So we're going to call this section, <laughs> I might be a little too dramatic, maybe because I've put it all in caps, legacy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing it. I like it. Uh, the 1994 attack I have said this before, but I'm saying it again just to prove the point. It skyrocketed the popularity of figure skating, and it made a mainstream, popular American sport out of it. This allowed figure skating tours to be sold out. Skaters were making tons of money. Barack Obama, shout out Barack and Michelle. Yeah. Uh, he referenced the incident in his speech during the primaries in 2008. He said that people told him, quote, his only chance, he's got to kneecap him. He's got to do a Tanya Harding on the front runner. Be better, Barack. That's <laughs> 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 where she's at. Mm -hmm. uh, the attack also inspired a novel, several documentaries, an award-winning movie, an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I never thought I'd say these words. And an opera. Hello. Tanya and Nancy, the rock opera, premiered in Oregon in 2008. Mm -hmm. They enjoyed a sold-out run at the 2015 New York Musical Theater Festival. The musical is described as, quote, a darkly comedic original musical done with the great deal of heart. This work of fiction inspired by actual events utilizes the 1994 Tanya Harding-Nancy Kerrigan media scandal to explore America's obsession with celebrity scandals and the amazing amount of pressure put on young athletes by society's go-for-gold-at-all-costs attitude. A rocking score and a collection of characters that are sure to take audience members on a bizarre trip down memory lane rounds out a truly unique theatrical experience. And apparently, there was also Tanya Harding, the musical. Um, it was performed at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles. As opposed to the rock opera, the musical says it is a, quote, comedy based in Los Angeles about the infamous and harrowing story of Tanya Harding told from her perspective. The hour-long show is no longer performed live, but it can be found on YouTube and all I'm going to say about it is, I didn't last a full two minutes. <laughs> We're all doing our best. We are. Uh, and if two musicals weren't enough, there is also 
the Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan 1994 Museum. Oh. Two comedians who prefer the term performers were watching an ESPN documentary about Tanya when they decided to create a Kickstarter in order to open a museum in their apartment in Williamsburg. They ended up raising more than $2,000. The museum is just literally stuff hung on a wall in the hallway of their apartment. Um, There are magazines from the 90s, Nancy Kerrigan trading cards, a triple axle diorama, old issues of skating magazines, and even a comic book titled The Galooly, which was named after Tanya's ex-husband, Jeff. But since it's in their actual apartment, they won't give the location out openly. (laughs) You have to, like, do some stuff you pay and then give them your full name so that they can, like, if you end up being psycho or do something, they can track you down or whatever. I think there's, like, background checks involved. I have no idea. Uh, The museum creators, who call themselves performers, um, as they once performed at the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, they say they've since stopped and they are now a hotel receptionist and a tour guide. I mean, it's good to have hobbies. I can't imagine this museum, but also, like, I feel like I live in one sometimes (laughs) with the amount of stuff. I live in a Funko Museum is where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, A bar called the South Pacific Cafe created a drink for Tanya called the Triple Axel. It contains vodka, Bacardi 151, watermelon liqueur, orange juice, and pineapple juice. And I think it's lovely that she is being honored in at least some sort of positive way. When decades later, she still gets rats thrown in her mailbox and literal shit left on her door and wiped on her vehicles. It's amazing to me she puts up with that, but Jeff, who admits to conceiving the plan, doesn't. Nor does the man who actually did the crime. And yes, I know that Jeff changed his name. But literally, any time you Google something about Jeff Galuli, the first thing that comes up is, he changed his name to Jeff Stone, so it's easy to find him is my point. Uh, So I don't think the name change helped him hide in any way. No. What I do think is the public chose to vilify the woman. And I'm not saying she was completely innocent because we'll never know exactly what she did or did not know. But it's definitely an issue that the world has chosen to focus all of their hate and anger on the only woman involved in that. And just know that I'm not excusing what Tanya may or may not have done. I'm just saying the men in this case who were actually there and physically did this had a lighter sentence than Tanya did. I think Jeff summed it up nicely when he said, quote, she'll never be remembered for how wonderful a figure skater she was. She'll be remembered for what I talked her into doing. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm ya bitch. Yes, you are, baby. Yeah. Wow. What a quote indeed. Listen. Yeah. I have so many things. My my psychologist hat is burning a hole in my scalp. It can't wait to say its piece. 
We're going to take another quick break. I have to hit the can again, and we're going to be right back (laughs) to sum up our thoughts on this episode about Tanya Harding on True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are discussing Tanya Harding. I have taken a lot of chaotic notes, as I am wont to do on this show. Sure. So I'm going to try and make my way through as best I can. It's that I never know what's going to become relevant to me later. So I feel like I have to yes. take notes on everything. And then it's like, of I course. I need to start. I need to start, you know. Oh my God, it's like, where do I even start these? Okay, hold on. All right. I mean, obviously, I want to get into my personal thoughts about what's going on with Tanya Harding. Again, I sure. I am not a licensed professional, and I should not be giving out diagnoses whatsoever. Can I allude or speculate to what I think may be possibly going on? Of course. On? Uh, yes, I will. I will, because it's what we do here. It is. Okay. It is. Couple of things first, very quickly. Poor Michelle Kwan. <laughs> so she got, she placed and then was supposed to go. And then they're like, just kidding. Nancy Kerrigan's going to go instead. Like, why didn't they send the three of them? And then when they were going through the, oh, we're not going to, we're going to make Tanya leave. That would have meant Michelle would have gone in her place. So they toyed with her twice. You know what? Hashtag justice for Michelle Kwan, because I think she's one of the real victims here. That poor woman. She didn't deserve that. She skated and she placed. In my opinion, now I don't know how the Olympic Committee works, and I'm sure that they would argue against me. But in my opinion, it should have been, okay, Tanya and Michelle placed, and Nancy's in this weird thing, so we'll send her along as the third. We'll, we'll, we'll... They're the Olympic Committee. Can't they decide that? Like, can't they appeal to the larger Olympic Committee and say, here's what's going on? Because it's pretty disgusting that it's like you were just trying to, I mean, listen, is is it a surprise? No. But it's pretty disgusting that it's like, well, we've got to facilitate the drama and the, you know, the viewership by just pushing Michelle Kwan out, who again, qualified. Yes. 
I love that that was the thing that I could not I could not wait another second to get out. Mm-hmm. Justice I for like Michelle it. Kwan. I yes, I feel for her because that's you know that's bullshit in my opinion. That's bullshit. Yes. Okay. Here's the first thing. Here's the pattern that I see when we're talking about when we're talking about Tanya. And listen, when you start to get into her childhood and not being allowed to go to the bathroom and having to pee on the ice, that is. I mean, the levels of abuse to that alone, Mm -hmm. that doesn't even get into the fact that her mother was, you know, verbally, emotionally, physically abusive, uh, you know, as that she was saying basically almost daily. That's going to cause a problem for anybody who experiences it. That level of trauma is extremely high. Um, So I preface all of this by saying... None of what I'm about to say is a judgment about Tanya Harding at all. It's it's merely that I like to, I'm fascinated by why people do the things they do and what the insights are to that. And the thing that kept coming up, because you kept talking about how, you know, the the she claims that she had to get a boob job because her boobs got flattened. The fat and the muscle and cartilage got flattened. And I'm like, I don't know anything. And I should have Googled it on the break, but I don't know that there's cartilage in our breasts. I don't believe there is. Maybe somewhere in the holding them in. I don't know. But I I've never heard Thank that before. You. Um but what's and then okay, so that's that's the first thing. And then there was also her claiming that maybe her parents aren't biologically hers. And then there was another thing that came up later on. Uh that I'm going to I'm going to find real quick somehow but there was another thing that came coming on uh about her a therapy and antidepressants and she said yeah. right she said well I wasn't going because I was kook or whatever these are right. three examples of things that she perceives to be shameful she has a perception that getting a boob job comes along with some amount of shame she sure. perceives that therapy and antidepressants have an amount of shame, and she perceives that being related to her parents has an amount of shame. And what's interesting to me is that it is important to her. Th- these are three examples, and I bet you that if we went through every interview she's ever done, we could probably find dozens more. Sure. These are examples of her feeling the need to justify why she either was, again, related to her parents or or, or not related to her parents. Or why she had to do those things. She didn't feel like she could say, I just got a boob job. She had to say, well, they they were crushed in a freak accident and I had no choice. You see what I'm saying? And like, well, I went to a therapist, but it's not because I'm crazy. It's like, hold on, Tanya, no one one was saying, was putting these judgments on you. And that to me connects to a mother who was constantly criticizing her, who would beat her with a hairbrush if she wasn't doing her moves correctly she feels so much anxiety about doing anything that could be conceived as quote wrong that she feels she needs to get ahead of it by making these statements like well i did it but it's not because of whatever there was even something at the very end you mentioned about how um about how she said something about like uh you know my when i'm being a bitch people will know that where i got it from she can't take responsibility for that either, right? Um, sure. That it's like she has to make excuses. It's not her fault. It, there's a reason behind everything. And that, I mean, that points to, I mean, I think almost every personality disorder that exists, which again, if we're looking at almost every personality disorder exists, you know, 
it is always pretty much tied to severe child abuse, severe childhood trauma. Sure. That's, of course, on a spectrum. But when we're talking about people who are in the, the thick of a serious personality disorder, it's usually because of severe child abuse. And I would, I would, I would describe what she went through as pretty severe. To me, again, sure. like being forced to publicly pee as a child on the ice, like what through her clothes. So then she has to like sit in her own wet. Like that is yeah. a horror show. And what yeah. a moment of shame, right? Yeah. So now she is so overwhelmed by the idea of having to do something that is, again, in her mind, quote, shameful. She has to make excuses for it. Like to me, it was like, right. you know, it, it just all is really painting a picture of, of again, what arguably not 100% her fault in, in any way, because, you know, it feels like, again, that was that that's a result of that childhood trauma and abuse. Now, how we choose to handle that in adulthood and, and how we choose to if we choose to recognize that in self-awareness, that's a different story about whether or not. But the other thing about some personality disorders, of course, is that if you are deep enough into them, you don't realize that there's something wrong with you or, sure. you know, I mean, again, if we're getting into like dissociative disorders, people you know, and that's something that happens. I, I've been reading a lot about actually. That's something that happens when a child is abused and their psyche literally splits. So it's one of those things where mm. when they're going through abuse, their brain goes somewhere else. They disassociate from the situation. They take them they sure. take their mind out. So their body's there, but their mind isn't. And, you know, that's how when we hear about like what we what we used to know as multiple personality disorder then is now known as dissociative identity disorder and what that is like the science behind it which is fascinating is that it's it's rooted in that and so it's it's that your your psyche basically kind of cracks over time Oof. and that it it goes from you just dissociating into your psyche literally becomes splits kind of permanently <gasps> and then you if you're in this other kind of part of your psyche you can create a reality that is not really tethered to this earth. And in that reality, everyone's out to get you. Nothing is your fault. You perceive things in ways that are not real. Now, I'm not suggesting that she maybe has that going on for her, but I only bring it up because I've been reading about these things recently and it's I just find it all fascinating. And the idea, again, that, um, that our brains, the way our brains try and protect us is by is by splitting and 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 dissociating and doing all these things and that's what our brains are trying to biologically physically do to, to try and protect us from the abuse but unfortunately in trying to protect us sometimes it harms us you know what i mean right um, yeah. and i just think it's it's fascinating again that that this is very sadly what so many people go through I, I feel like um to different extents but with her again the perfectionism that was instilled in her the like you're not good enough you're fat you're ugly and then even when you're getting into the the competition and that her clothes weren't good enough and and you know that she was not winning because of something like that like there's so much shame associated with her life then as an adult her husband sells a sex tape of the two of them i mean it, this this woman again has just at every turn been shamed for existing 
And yeah. she's an exception. She she is an exceptional skater. She is exceptional yeah. in what she is good at. And then think about, think about also, as you said before, the one thing she always had was her skating, and then that got taken away from her through throughout all of this. And listen mm-hmm. to your point. We'll never know how much she was involved or wasn't involved. Who knows? But we do know that she didn't physically do it. We know that much. Right. And the idea that this woman who has lived a lifetime of abuse at, you know, the hands of her parents, of her brother or stepbrother, half-brother, I can't remember, yeah. uh, Chris Chris Davison, um, her husband, her next husband, you know, the fact that the one outlet that she had, which was still difficult because she was getting, you know, chastised for the outfits, et cetera, the fact that that was taken away from her and that they took her championship ch- title away from her. I will be honest, mm-hmm. as I was listening, I was feeling shades of China. I was like, this is sure. a very similar. And then when we're getting into the reality show kind of story, I was like, it, it is interesting because I feel like I could see her having gone down a similar path as China. Truthfully, I could have seen this having a much different outcome for her, yeah. um, which, you know, God bless that she is in this relationship now that hopefully is healthy and and she says that she's a good mother. Right. Hopefully her husband and her child um have grounded her and that and that that has given her, you know, reasons to be, et cetera, because that's what I just kept thinking the whole time. I was like, this is a person who's yeah. been failed in so many ways and by the occupation that she loves so much and the people that were, you know, hires up uh, higher ups at the occupation that she loves so much. And that's, again, I mean, it's 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 tragic. It's tragic. She didn't have a chance from the start. Um, I think how did you deal? How do you deal with your childhood abuse? Drive a big truck and have a big dog is a very telling statement. I think that really speaks to what she thinks she needs to be and how she think how. Sure. I think that what I hear from that is she doesn't feel safe. That she feels like she needs to be in a big tr- a big truck and with a big dog that so that no one can hurt her. That's what I heard from that statement, which again, heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but I'm not not gonna mention one thing. Okay. So I just thought it was interesting that in 1988 we know that Chris Davison was killed in a hit and run after allegedly molesting her for 10 years. Yeah. And I'm just saying she did set a record for fast driving later in life. Now I know what you're thinking, Lauren. You're thinking, Lauren, that's a stretch. That's a super stretch. You can't say that just because somebody was good at driving means they would have killed somebody in a hit and run years prior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can't you? But, <laughs> I, I mean... It was, it just, listen, it's a major stretch. It just stuck out to me. I was like, it's interesting to me because if he had been molesting her for 10 years, my goodness, I'm sure any, no one deserves that, that motherfucker, if that's what you're doing, may you rot. Um, And I'm sure sure that she would, would have wanted to justifiably would have wanted to, I'm not justifying killing anybody but you you know what i'm saying the feelings could right. have been there is my whole point right. um you know i thought that was an interesting connection i think it's also very interesting that you know one of the people involved died in an unknown way that another one involved is is whereabouts are unknown 
Derek's whereabouts are unknown. Sean died at 40 from unknown causes. It's interesting to me because, of course, the, the story that I would like to fictitiously write in my head is that she's just getting, she is vindicating, she's getting vengeance against all the men who wronged her in her life. I mean, that's... Oh, she's like John Wick, but a woman. That's what I would, you know, that's what I would... And the dog is her childhood and oh, her dreams. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I am not actually suggesting that just because she won, set a record for driving a, a car fast in any way proves that she killed somebody and hit and run. Make no mistake, I'm not saying that. But it just made me think for a second that it was like, is it possible she could be connected to his hit and run death? Is it possible her dad was? Who knows? Is it possible that Jeff did it for the sake of like, because they were starting to see each other at that point. So is it possible that he was like, either I'm getting rid of this man because nobody touches her but me, or like a, because she'll really love that. Trying to be trying to be a hero. Yeah. Because that- Allegedly. Allegedly. That also fits his MO about this whole Nancy Kerrigan thing. Trying to be a, trying to be a hero there where it's like, Jeff, nobody asked. Nobody asked. Like- Nobody asked. Regardless, again, it's all, again, a tragic tale. A tragic tale. The fact that then she later got booed off a stage. I mean, it, the hits keep coming. The hits keep coming. I'm glad that she has, I, I'm glad that she's still with us, honestly. And that's not meant to be crass. I am, because I feel like this woman has been through a lot. She suffered yeah. a lot. Uh, that is not her fault. Um, and uh, it could have had a much different ending. Her Her story could have had a much different ending, because it feels... Like, again, overwhelming. But those were my thoughts. I like your thoughts, especially at the beginning when you were saying, uh, listing all of these things and saying, well, look at these. Everything has an excuse as to why, like, she can't accept um, certain just basic facts. There were two skating competitions she did not do well in and one it was well my my skate lace was broken and then she did one where she didn't she ended up in fourth i believe and uh it was well if you watch the video you can see like my skate blade is just like slightly off and so it was it's a problem with my skate blade or whatever and a problem with the equipment or because in skating, you can only have so many equipment problems. Right. So it's like you got to invent things. It's definitely a pattern for her that seems pretty – and that's not an abnormal pattern for people who – again, and I'm not saying she has a personality disorder. I'm not saying that. I'm not a professional. But I'm saying that she has a level of abuse to have developed one, absolutely, whether it's borderline or – or something else like it's it, and that's not her fault um and that is obviously a trait that goes along with that which which is understandable again if you grew up as a child being badly abused all the time you are going to want to make sure that you you're you're not going to want to be to blame for anything because you learned for years as a kid that if you did anything wrong you were going to be getting a, yeah. a lot of a lot of trouble and a lot of physical pain so Again, you know, like it's 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 not a again, there's no, there's no shame also for people who who do have those um diagnoses either. I mean, again, like it's 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 just again for me, it's always just trying to figure out like what is the 
what is the root of all these things? Because it's it's fascinating how deeply our childhoods <laughs> impact the rest of our lives. But yeah, that was yeah. just something that stood out to me. I was like, this is a person who can absolutely not take responsibility, who seems to have a very high aversion to things that she perceives to be shameful that other people may not, and that she needs to make sure that people know, well, it wasn't me. And there's a reason why. And that just says to me that I'm like, I think that there's there's stuff going on for her. Again, oh, which yeah. would make sense. Oh, 100%. I mean, all of it. Like everything from her childhood, the fact that she's, like you said, the fact that she's still around after everything that she went through. I mean, again, people chose specifically her as the villain in all of this because it was a much cooler story to make it a cat fight between these complete polar opposite women as opposed to four fucking men, idiots, if I may, uh, concocted a really stupid plan and barely pulled it off. So it's like, how about any of them? Because I also feel like if she was like super involved in what went down in that specific attack, I think it would have been done better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If it's your, I think you used the word bumbling at one point that felt yes. very accurate. And I remember that when, when I watched I, Tanya as well. I remember that too, that they really kind of made it clear that these guys were not exactly, uh, you know, they weren't exactly pulling yeah. off a bank heist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's frustrating, too, because, again, the narrative, as we we talk about on this show so often, but the narrative for so long was about, you know, well, you know, women, they hate other women and women catfight and can't get along. And they are always, yeah. you know, and it's it's like, first of all, not true. Second of all, um, you know, that's a narrative that is that is has existed to benefit the patriarchy that has existed to sure. keep women down. And that's, yeah, I agree with you. I think this is a perfect example of that. I mean, think about this. Like, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to me she was trying to get out of her abusive household with her mother and was like, first dude, great. I am out of here. And then he's abusive yeah. too, but it's like, well, what's worse? And then, of course, as you had pointed out, yeah. Um, and then, first of all, also, by the way, trying to break out of an abuse cycle is exceptionally difficult. It is impossibly in, in difficult for so many people. So that's going to be difficult already. Then when you add in the fact that the the you know officials that she talked to were like, well, maybe it would help if you look like you were in a successful marriage. She's somebody that we know doesn't like to screw up, does not like to be yeah. to admit failure, doing something wrong, something that could be perceived as shameful. Of course, she's going to try and hang on to that relationship. So that makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, she's at a time where she hadn't been doing well, right? And then it was like, okay, well, we got to, you know, she had done the one Olympics. She didn't do what she wanted to do. She's getting a chance two years later, which is unprecedented because it doesn't happen anymore. You got to wait every four years now, right? right. Um, I could absolutely see. Jeff Galuli, Galuli, whatever, however you pronounce it, I could absolutely see him being like, 
shooting his mouth, being a dummy. They're all sitting around or whatever. And it's like, well, you know what we should do is just take out the competition, take out Nancy or whatever, whatever. And her being sure. like, oh, yeah, whatever. Or, you know, her level of knowledge about it to being whatever degree. Then either, you know, potentially getting on board, like it's like, well, maybe that isn't the worst idea. Well, maybe this would be something. Well, maybe this is whatever. Um, or not. But at the end of the day, I buy that the crime that she definitely committed was she definitely knew of something happening and didn't report it. That sounds plausible to me. Yeah. In terms of whether it was her idea, it sounds like it wasn't because from what Jeff has been saying publicly himself, it's like, well, I did this thing and it really ruined her life. (laughs) So it feels like if she did go along with it, there's also the possibility we don't know what their dynamic was at that time. We don't know that she wasn't like... It will be easier for my day-to-day if I just go along with this. We don't know. Right. Or or it could have been that she was a mastermind going, yes, absolutely, take her out. We don't know. But if anything, it feels to me, again, like her involvement, we definitely know, was not physically doing the attack, was not doing the getaway, <laughs> putting her head through a glass door. Um Sure. And again, based on the things that Jeff has said, it sounds again like he he takes responsibility for it, but again, also doesn't take responsibility. So is like, yeah. you know, well, I don't really regret it because we all do things in life and whatever, but I did ruin her life. I did, and I all because I, I did that thing. And it's like, so wait, you threw her under the bus in court. How much was she involved, or did you just throw her under the bus to get yourself a lighter sentence? Because I can see that did. too, right? A hundred percent. And I also wonder if he sold that sex tape to try and get the money to pay those guys. Because you were like, how did he get that money? Oh, and then he's like, shit, they, they did it. Now I have to make good on this offer. How am I going to get that money fast? Right? Great point. Yeah. Oh, Which is yeah. also so gross. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, they're just... All such idiots, and especially when you think of the fact that it didn't do at all what they wanted, because she wasn't, she was taken out of that competition, but she wasn't taken out of the Olympics. And because Tanya came in first, who knows if what Nancy would have skated. Nancy could have come in second that day. Like, you don't know... Tanya, it could have still been the same for Tanya in the end. And then when they go to the Olympics, Tanya wouldn't have all of this hanging over her. And who knows what it have been. So it just feels to me because in the end, it didn't do at all what they wanted. And all it did was destroy the one person it was supposed to help. That it's like, it was, it was pointless. Totally pointless. Totally. And I also just have to say wild that nancy kerrigan and her manager are still together oh yeah i did not think that length of a relationship would happen when you know i mean again he was her manager in 92 he divorced in 93 they married in 95 going well we've only been together a year and mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. the wife very much so does not believe that Yeah. So who knows? It's just, yeah, it's crazy that it's like, well, they're set for life, I guess. They were just like, this is it. And then they were done. 
It's fascinating. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, as always, fabulous work. I loved the side notes. I loved the info. I loved the change up. Again, this is a crime that rocked the world. It did. Yeah. And I remember it being so huge. And it was just always like, always there, like TV and newspapers. Like it was just always there. And then looking back and going through it all, it was like, oh, well, it wasn't as big of a thing. Like it was. It didn't really, it all kind of happened very quickly from like her being attacked. And then, like, less than a week later, a guy was like, Yeah, it was me. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm encounter intelligence. It's like, No, you're not. Just stop, stop it. it. Like, there's an interview with him where he says this, and the interviewer's like, But you're not. And he's like, I am. It's like, But you're not. Like, it's just. He's too much. And it's like, why was that your mastermind? Why was he the guy to go and like, I'm going to hire these guys. It's going to be great. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, surely there could have been someone better. Not that I'm suggesting they should have done it better. But again, they did it so badly that it literally changed nothing that they wanted it to change. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, just hashtag justice for Michelle Kwan. <laughs> Thank you very much. I feel <laughs> very passionately about that. I think she went on yeah. to win things, though. Didn't she go on to place in the Olympics? Oh, I think so, because she was like a really well-known name in figure skating, and I wouldn't have known her name before this if she hadn't done yeah. well. I don't know. I'll have to do a search for that after I search boob ingredients. <laughs> Is there cartilage in boobs? I just, maybe in your, your, your rib cage, but I don't think that in your boobs, like I don't, I also don't know that what she's talking about is, is science. I don't know that if you hit your boobs really hard, they'll just flatten like pancakes. I don't think that that's science. I don't know, but I feel that some true crew medical professionals will let us know. I can't wait. Um, we don't need photos. No, we'll believe you. (laughs) We'll believe you. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We so appreciate all of your support. If you haven't already, give us a follow on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives. And if multiple hours of these two yahoos talking every week is not enough, consider Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails, where we offer a subscription service that involves bonus episodes. It involves live monthly Q&As that are over three hours long because we just cannot stop. Uh, they're so much fun. We, we honestly just have the best time over there. And so uh, it's a whole lot of fun if you want to check that out. Also, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. Um, there's still fun Halloween stuff available. Uh, so get that while you can available until November 1st. Uh, and I should also add this episode is dropping October 5th, which is roughly a week before our one year anniversary of the show. So keep an eye out because October 13th, 2021 uh, we're going to be doing a live. We're going to be doing a live on Instagram and a live on Patreon yeah. as a, a a celebration, a one year celebration. My goodness, we've celebrated. We have so much to celebrate. A whole year. 
of accomplishments. I could not be happier that we have a specific date now for our anniversary. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know we got engaged at Christmas. We, of course. but <laughs> As children, yes. Yes. But to know that we have a specific date and the, every once in a while we mention our anniversary, it really warms my heart in so many ways. It's a beautiful thing. It's a yeah. very beautiful thing. Um, there's also, as of now, a bonus episode of the show that we have released as a little one-year anniversary gift from us to you. True Crime and Fairy Tales, this the sordid tale of the Little Mermaid, a.k.a. Princess Ariel. Check that out if you haven't already. It's in our main feed here. Um, anywhere you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Um, and again, we thank you all so very much for listening. We we just love doing the show, and we appreciate all your support, as always. Christy, do you want to tell the people about uh, next week's episode? Oh. Well, you spoke about Patreon. Yes. Um, and it is a Patreon poll pick. That's one of the things yeah. over on Patreon. You can vote once a month for an episode that we're going to cover in the main feed of the show. Uh, and this was our poll pick for September. Yep. According to my notes. Great. September. Great. <laughs> I barely know what month we're in currently. Makes sense. Uh, on the next True Crime and Cocktails, Edgar Allan Poe. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to hear mm-hmm. everything that you have to find. We've gotten this one requested quite a bit uh, from a lot of you. So it's going to be exciting to dive in. We're going to go back in time, get in the time machine, hug smugglers, because we've got something to do. Uh, I don't know anything about him, his crimes, or crimes committed around him. I don't know. So I don't know who we're hugging. (laughs) Maybe nobody, but we're going to drive by in the time machine and at least wave, uh, because obviously that's uh, just... What we do now. <laughs> um, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Reedlow. Good night, future time traveling us. <laughs>